Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. We have a lot to get to today and a lot of news to talk about. This week, a Chinese high-altitude espionage balloon floated over Montana. Never mind that the president and our defense and intelligence communities know about it and have taken, are taking steps, both diplomatic and otherwise, to deal with this incursion. Never mind any of that. Stop everything instead. Oh, no, there's a balloon over Montana. Get your guns and ammo out and prepare to shoot into the sky. And while we're at it, impeach the president, shut down the government because, oh, no, the Chinese are spying. So it goes in the GOP. Boy, what are they going to do when they learn about satellites or cyber or Russian meddling with? Oh, wait. Oops. Never mind. Change the subject. How about CRT? Anybody? Anybody for CRT? The autocrats are on offensive. Isn't that something new? They never acknowledge a loss because it violates their creedal worship of power. And it's all about power. You see it in Ron DeSantis' determination to strip any privacy from young women who dare to play high school sports. You see it in Tennessee, where power itself is the reason to strip Nashville of its ability to elect any representatives to the state legislature. You saw it in Ohio, where the MAGA power simply ignored the state Supreme Court to impose an illegal and unconstitutional map on voters. The right celebrates its power in scripted rallies, in scripted talking points, in scripted Fox TV shows. Orthodoxy, as Ruth Bengat taught us on this show, is a requirement of dictators, from Mao's little red book to the endless, thoughtless repetition of the wisdom of Hannity. But reality is hard to ignore. The accomplishments of President Biden and the last Congress are making our lives better. More jobs created than at any time in history. Wages are up. Inflation down. Manufacturing resurgent. Infrastructure under construction everywhere. <laughs> no, no wonder they're going crazy over a balloon. Anything to change the subject. Anything to return to their narrative of inescapable power. <clears throat> but let's take heart. There is nothing inescapable about an entitled minority taking power in America. Let's just review. Thomas Jefferson, in many ways my least favorite of the founding generation, he led a movement that destroyed the Federalist Party when it became clear to many that the Federalists sought to consolidate too much power in the hands of too few leaders. Fast forward a couple of generations, Abraham Lincoln led us through a civil war to break the power of big cotton, a minority power that enslaved some Americans and sought by other means to subjugate the rest. Jefferson's fight required limiting the power of government and was tied to the Bill of Rights, those first amendments, the 10 that restricted what government could do. But the power of big cotton wasn't a government power, even though it sought to control all governing, to rein it in a new way of thinking about our government was required. And for the first time, an amendment was passed that gave the government more, not fewer powers. This was, of course, the 13th Amendment, which allowed the government to enforce an end to slavery. Now, once again, 
A minority power seeks to dictate to the rest of us. They wear lapel pins on the floor of the U.S. House, so we know they are. Those are pins designed to look like assault weapons. Shame on them. They oppose any sensible restrictions of these and other weapons that push our society from civil to uncivil. They seek to restrict reproductive choice at all costs. They push to remove from our libraries books that fail their latest orthodoxy tests. They have succeeded in corrupting our politics through a factional control of our highest court, rendering Congress helpless to limit big money in politics and states helpless to fight racial and radical gerrymandering. Their fertile ground is, of course, American discontent and American division, so they sow both. And yet, despite their efforts, the last Congress and President Biden delivered legislative victories that are improving American lives everywhere. This week's fabulous economic news is not accidental. It's the result of sound policy and effective government leadership. But those victories... They came at a cost because governing is hard work, and it's not always the same as politics. The minority, not concerned about governing, inimical to it in its democratic form, now they have control of the people's house. Never forget, never allow it to be normal that the people's house, that the Congress, the House of Representatives, is led by members who voted to overturn our election who told us our votes need not be counted. Shame on them. Their faction is well-funded and rabidly determined. They appeal to base and powerful human emotions, to fear, to tribe, to resentment. And they invoke ancient ideas of power to gather supporters and to demoralize opponents. They are the red wave rolling out from America's heartland to impose order on the rest of us. And yet, the Federalists were the party of Washington and Hamilton and Adams. They were in power securely before Jefferson outorganized them and sent them to the filing cabinet known as history. The power of big cotton was even greater. When they couldn't get their way, they just offered to leave. No harm. You go your way. We go ours. What could be more reasonable, they said. Except Mr. Lincoln recalled that they were heirs to a declaration that all were created equal, that all were endowed by the maker with inalienable rights. It took Jefferson years to complete his victory. It took years and a terrible war to complete Mr. Lincoln's. Look, now in our own time, we face a power hostile to the majority, determined to rule, and forgetful of the promises we made in that declaration, and again when we the people promised ourselves to the task of bringing into the world a more perfect union. Their angry, factional, twisted worldview has captured many good Americans, but look, many more are fighting back. That great red wave of theirs landed like a little ripple in the last election. And that's because we fought back. And you know what? It's hard. They, they are all about strife, and we're about harmony. So it doesn't feel like a fair fight all the time. But you know what? They can continue to organize, to fund, and to divide. Won't help. I told you here on this show more than a year ago, 
that we, it will take several election cycles to defeat this dangerous sect. So hug your family, take your dog for a long walk, read a good book, like Arjuna, leave the field before the battle and clear your head. Then you will see the threat for what it really is, but you will also see the strength of our larger cause, the great mass of America. In its diversity and determination, has no match in the world, let alone among our homegrown detractors. We, too, know how to organize. We, too, can raise funds. We will not be stripped of our humanity or lose it watching others be stripped of theirs. That's not who we are. We are a people who will strive, as we've talked about here on this show, as FDR told us, day and night by peaceful means to improve the lives of every American. And to those who hope that through coercive means to slow us down, to make us fail, to prove that we are incapable of self-government and so need a strong man, I promise this. The good people of America will not stand down in the face of your threats, but instead will firmly add you and your sect to history's filing cabinet. We have a great show lined up today. Jill Lawrence is back, and she's going to join us right after this break. I'll introduce her when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, as I promised you, we have a great set of conversations lined up for today. Uh, including uh, my conversation with you at the end of our time together. But right now I'm joined by Jill Lawrence. She's a columnist for USA Today and other publications. Uh, She's an author. Her 2017 book, The Art of the Political Deal, How Congress Beat the Odds and Broke Through Gridlock, is a reminder that democracies actually can work. And she wrote it before the miracle of the 117th Congress. She was last on the show back in September, and we have a lot to catch up on. Hi, Jill. Hi, and thanks for having me. I know. I'm, I'm thrilled you're back. I've wanted to catch up with you um, and happy we found this time. I, I'd love you. We have a lot. Let's see. I, before we're done, I'd like your take on the state of the democracy, the nature of the threat posed by my words, not yours, a partisan and radical Supreme Court, the threat posed by the current majority in the House of Representatives, if you think it's a threat. The specific threat from, you know, of Jim Jordan and his committee, if you think that's a threat. And if we have time, we could talk about Ron DeSantis and what's going on in the state. So there's a lot to cover. <laughs> Let's you know, like, a, start with your, a lot to cover. None of it's cheery, is it? <laughs> no. Uh-huh. Well, can we start with your overall assessment of sort of, you know, where we are? I know many of us breathed a sigh of relief after the midterms, but when the buzz wore off, I think we woke up to some troubling realities. Well, that is, in fact, true. And I hate to say this, but I was unable to stop that from happening with a column I wrote late last year about the mass of Congress. It doesn't matter if you only have a four or five person majority. That's a majority. And you get to set the agenda. You get to uh, decide what who's on what committees. You get to decide what they investigate. And so what we have here in the House is what I consider a pretty dangerous trend of weaponizing not just the weaponization committee that they're creating, but uh, the oversight committee and and through the membership on many committees, all, all of the committees. So 
I'm not happy about this because I can see what's going to happen with these investigations into the Biden family, into the Biden uh, administration. There, there are already impeachment campaigns going on for various administration figures. And, um, you know, this is not going to build trust in our institutions. And, and the most serious problem, I think, will come when the weaponization committee, these Special, the select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government gets going. Uh, you know, it's it is a weapon itself, and it's not as if Republicans haven't weaponized the government. So it seems more like a revenge type of um, activation than anything designed to find out whether there are, in fact, safe laws in the F- FBI or the Justice Department or, you know, the, the, the CIA, any of the national security uh, community. It's it's I'm thinking this could raise so much mistrust among a certain type of voter that, you know, the Democrats who aren't in a great position to keep the Senate next time anyway are going to be knocked out in some of these very close races where this type of um, activity in Congress plays. Now, of course, it could go the other way. People could be very fed up and upset, and you're already seeing some of this in polling. This is not helping me in my life. You know, this is not what we hired you to do. So we'll see how it plays out, but it it has a lot of nerve-wracking elements to it. Well, I have two... Uh, observations I want your feedback on. One, uh, when Bill Barr ran the Justice Department, he empowered special counsel John Durham to look at the weaponization of government. And we had that search. The same guys led it with subpoena power, with all the powers of the Justice Department, and they came up empty. So there's no, there's no there there for this, at least not where Jim Jordan is likely to look. And the second part is what on all the things you said that, that the majority in the House wants to do, none of them sounded to me like an effort to move our country forward in any way. None of them sounded like an effort to address inflation or to help the economy or to deal with any injustice or to build a bridge. Nothing that, that, that you think of as the job of government, not anything. Am I wrong about that? Well, the job of government uh, of the Congress is in part oversight, but, you know, this has a lot of whiff of partisanship and and partly because the stage was set. You know, these people did not come across as particularly constructive or objective or nonpartisan in, in earlier days and during the campaign. And so the it's hard to be optimistic about what could happen. I, I think that it's possible the Senate could lead the way on a little bit of this. Maybe we'll see a little bit of, of uh, progress, you know, on policing maybe or um, – a few things where where everyone agrees. There was a lot of bipartisan support for a China committee, and uh, of course now we see differences coming out over this balloon that's hovering over the United States. People want to shoot it down. Some people want to shoot it down. Some people don't think that we ought to do that. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, of differences. But on the other hand, I, I would never say never. I am, after all, the author of a book on bipartisan negotiation. So sometimes there can be common ground, even, uh, you know, even in a Congress like this where there is so much division. 
But, uh, you know, the fact that they are still going after investigating the investigators after what happened with the Durham investigation, it's not only that they didn't find anything suspicious about why the Crossfire Hurricane Russia investigation was started. When they got a tip about a crime from Italian authorities, they let everyone think it was, uh, you know, progress in their investigation, when in fact it was about a, a, a crime involved that, where Trump was suspected of doing something wrong. And I, I, you know, nothing seems to have come of that, and maybe there was nothing to it, but that, that seems to have been the only, you know, substantial tip they received of anything going amiss. So it's, you know, and it's spent six and a half million dollars, I think. You know, if you look at the Justice Department budget every year, they're just constantly hiring more and more and more and more people to handle things like the January 6th investigation, which is the biggest one in its history, as I understand it. It's using resources all throughout the country. It's very expensive when Republicans are in charge or filing lawsuits that, uh, you know, most people would consider unwinnable or, or unconstitutional. So, you know, that's where we are. Well, um, I, sorry uh, about that. No, no. Look, I, there's always been in uh, you know Western history. There's always been a a party that's in, that that sees the world as strife, and another that sees the world as a place of harmony, and they they fight back and forth. And these guys are all about strife, and strife is. Malthusian. It's a zero-sum game. I win, you lose. Therefore, at all costs, I will win. And that's where the Republicans are right now. That's one of the reasons why I think they want to get rid of business regulation. They want to go back to the way people fought, you know, in the early 18th century, where it was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and the market will take care of everything. But that was a disaster. Um, This is where they are. They are the 1920s. We were in a similar place here. It, it, it turned out to be a disaster. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of elements of the agenda that have to do with turning back time. The culture war is about, I think, turning back time. What you're describing at the same time that they want to have a lot of control over business and companies. Um, you know, there's a there's a everyone on your own type of uh, attitude that really goes back to the frontier, and mm-hmm. you know this is this is a a pluralistic, diverse democracy. And if you don't support that, if you want everyone to be just like you, I, that's not going to work. But there's going to be a lot of of strife, as you say, uh, on the, along the way to resolving that. Well, that's the fight we're in in our time. And I, I, Jill, I love that. I, I like that we live in a consequential time where the decisions that we, where the, what you write, what you decide to put down matters. Matters a lot now. There were periods when we have been alive, you and I, when it didn't matter as much. Um, so, so the decisions people make have an impact. And in the last election, you know, we were, we were told you're helpless. The red wave is going to run over you. And people said, you were not as helpless as you think. <laughs> I love that about us. That was um, very affirming. <laughs> Although I, I wish a few more people had not voted for Republicans, and then we might have a Democratic House by the skin of our teeth. I, I just think yeah. it's not 
it's dangerous now. It is very dangerous. Yeah. That's partly what makes it important. Um, and um, let's let's dive into that danger a little bit more just because we're on a cheery subject. Why don't you tell me your thoughts about our current Supreme Court? Well, first of all, it, it seems to me that it's illegitimate um, because of what happened during the Obama administration. And um, there's just a, that's not that's just issue one. The, the Merrick Garland Stonewall, the, the blockade against Obama getting to uh, name a Supreme Court justice. And now we're seeing um, similar blocks of Biden choices for lower courts. And we're also finding a whole range of, of ethics problems at the Supreme Court that I'm, I'm not sure we've seen this kind of breadth of, um, of controversy and problematic conduct. So we have the leak of the Supreme Court decision on abortion. And people agree it's all appalling and it, it had to be, you know, investigated. And then it turns out that we don't actually uh, have an independent investigative body to look at the Supreme Court. So, you know, it, it's just kind of uh, you find these things out. You find that they haven't found who was the leaker. You find that they haven't um, really interviewed the Supreme Court justices seriously, didn't require a... Uh, a signed affidavit, which they had required of the staff and employees. Um, you find that the the reviewer, uh, Michael Chertoff, the former Department of Homeland Security secretary, who who looked at the re- at the investigation and found that it was professional and thorough. You find that he has been making money from Supreme Court by uh, he runs a security firm. And uh, they've had him review security around the justices' um, homes. This is a, a CNN story by John Biskupic, a very respected Supreme Court expert. So, I, you know, it, then, then you have the whole January 6th situation where... Wait, wait hang on. Don't go... We'll stop there for a second. Stop there. So Michael Chertoff... Everyone in Chicago might remember that we used to have a consulting company here called Arthur Anderson. Um, he's the guy who led the fight that uh, put them out of business. Maybe that was the right thing to do. Maybe not. You might also remember Michael Chertoff was in charge of Homeland Security during Hurricane Katrina and was responsible for uh, uh, the government's utter catastrophic failure to be helpful during that disaster. But he keeps popping up. He's a very popular guy amongst the GOP. Um, his security firm gets contracts all the time, including at the Supreme Court, because it's nothing if not, you know, reward your friends over there. Um, um, well, you do you know, think whatever. they didn't want to know the answer? I mean, you, you said they didn't find out, but really, they're not that many human beings in that building. They could have found out if they put people under oath. They didn't want to find out the answer, did they? Well, there there are so many problems. Uh, first of all, the person who was investigating them was their employee, um, not an independent investigator. Um, second of all, uh, Mark Zaid, who who is um, a pretty uh, he rep- represents he is um, a lawyer for a lot of people in whistleblower and national security cases, and you know he's pretty outspoken about what he thinks has gone wrong there. But one thing he told me was that it was kind of like a marriage where one spouse is having an affair and the other spouse thinks this might be the case but never asks. 
because you don't want to know because the consequences would be so terrible, so unbearable. So, and then he said, if it were identified to be a justice or their spouse, the consequence to the justice and the court would be devastating. So, I mean, and I, I, I do understand that. Um, but, you know, the bigger picture um, that I was going to mention before is that, you know, there's an honor system kind of when you get to the top people in our government. And the Supreme Court, unlike lower courts, has no code of conduct and it doesn't have term limits and the people are not up for election. They can't be recalled. Um, there's, you know, they don't have an inspector general who, who can't be fired uh, from the job. Um, it's it's kind of a no exit situation. It's a closed circle, and we see, for instance, with the Justice Thomas situation, you have a spouse who's been so active in what amounts to uh, an attempt to overthrow the government or to nullify an election, and yet, you know, he's still ruling on on cases related to January sixth, and it's and there's no way to. You know, if he's doing that, then then why did the newest justice recuse herself from uh, the um, Harvard affirmative action case? Because she was on some board at some point involving that school. You know, it's it's people make their own standards, I guess. And, and that doesn't feel right in a situation like this. And, and particularly, you know, this is just my own hobby horse. But I think a lot of people share my concern that. Many of these justices were chosen by presidents who did not receive a majority of the popular vote, three of them by Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton by nearly three million votes. So, you know, and and one of at least one by George W. Bush, who his first term was um, he lost the popular vote to Al Gore by half a million votes, um, went on to nominate Sam Alito. So, you know, these are these quirks of our history that are really strange. You know, my husband would always mention Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's still, you know, she should rest in peace, but he's still upset that she didn't um, resign, step down during the Obama administration. And and so then he maybe could have... Maybe. Maybe he could have, but maybe Mitch McConnell with his majority would have said, you don't get a pick. You know, it's hard to know how low they would go. But listen, speaking of low, we're at the bottom of the hour. I need to take a quick break. All of you are listening. I'm talking to Jill Lawrence. We will be back in just a moment. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with uh, uh, journalist, columnist, author Jill Lawrence. And before the break, uh, Jill and I were talking about the Supreme Court. Jill, you you described it as illegitimate and, and I feel like on this show, I should have like Groucho Marx used to have the duck that falls from the ceiling, you know, on a prize every time somebody calls the Supreme Court illegitimate. <laughs> you, 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 you mean you, I'm not you, the first? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, it, it, but, you know, you, um, you, you, you located that illegitimacy in the packing of the court uh, that went on when President Obama was denied a chance to appoint Merrick Garland, something I hope the right will soon be very sorry about. Um, 
and jammed through a bunch of uh, justices that didn't reflect uh, the results of the elections. I find its illegitimacy somewhere else. Um, well, I agree with you uh, that what happened was uh, awful. Um, but what makes them illegitimate for me is that it looks like they have abandoned um, the practice of jurisprudence and have opted instead to use the power of the court for partisan ends. And that is something that, you know, Madison warned us about in the Federalist Papers in the direst of language. Language is saying this was a sure path to tyranny when the power of the judiciary and the faction in charge of the government linked hands. And, and I, I really worry about, about that more than how they got there, although how they got there is why they're behaving this way. Well, I think it's all wound up together. And, yeah. you know, the way they um, are looking at things, what, I mean, what we have is a very elastic interpretive system. I mean, the Constitution is in, can be interpreted any way you want. You can say that rights have been expanded until now and they're rolling them back, but you know they'll they'll find what they want in this constitution I, um the abortion opinion the the finding was that abortion was not a, deemed a fundamental right uh now that's because it wasn't mentioned now there are other rights that aren't mentioned that I guess the court believes are fundamental rights but this whole sort of fiction of originalism, which I, I hope that uh, it seems like Justice Jackson is kind of um, putting some some dents in that whole theory, at least uh, giving people things to think about. You know, people who are liberal, people who uh, don't pay that much attention to the court, just throwing some new ideas in the mix about um, what constitutes, for instance, um, removing race as a consideration for college admissions. When, you know, I think the most striking thing she, example she used was the legacy student whose family had been attending the University of North Carolina for generations and the student with a different kind of legacy whose family had been in the state for hundreds of years as slaves. And so he and he had never been able to go to University of North Carolina until then. And why couldn't he mention all of this in his application? So, you know, I, I'm hoping that some eyes will be opened, but frankly, it's either going to be too late um, because the, by letting states decide things on abortion, I just I, I don't know whether you can put all this back in the tube. You know what I'm saying? It's it's people are unless voters get very mobilized, unless Congress somehow manages to uh, get its act together and pass legislation. A, a lot of the chaos that we're seeing and a lot of the rulings that we're seeing um, have to do with Congress not doing its job, to be honest. Well, I, I partly agree with that. And yet the last Congress, the 117th Congress, while it was unable to pass voting rights, um, I, which I think this is appalling. It still was a remarkable Congress that did, by almost any historical standard, some pretty great work. I completely agree with that. Um, a lot of it was uh, sort of fundamental uh, things like infrastructure. You know, there's no um, issue with 
I guess there was an issue before Eisenhower did the uh, interstate, uh, you know, highway system. Mm -hmm. But now there's no issue that this is a federal role. It's a big country. We need a lot of infrastructure. We're lagging behind. It's bad for our economy. You know, it's bad for our security. So, I mean, there's a lot of bipartisan agreement on that. And if if anyone reads my book, you'll see the the trading and, and concessions and gains and and win-win type deals that go on. It's amazing what kind of what a microscopic level this gets to for a large bill like that to be passed. Mm-hmm. But, but people know people who know how to do it are really good at it. And, and uh, you know, they understand what it takes to get something like this across the finish line. And I'm, I'm really no great fan of Kristen Cinema, but in some of these situations, she actually does do what's necessary and get people on the same page. So well, I should yeah, ask you about this. I've never asked anybody yet about this. This Congress put earmarks back. Now, they gave them a different name, but they've been gone for a while, and they put it back, and I think maybe that was one of the reasons why they were able to do as much as they were able to do. Um, I think you're probably right. There are two schools of thought on earmarks. One is that the people from the districts and the states know what they need best, and the other is for all projects should go through some kind of vetting so that, you know, they're, they're, um, they're judged to have some kind of merit. So, so there mm-hmm. are those. But then you're absolutely right. This is how you grease the wheel. This is how you get the votes. And there used to be this um, common assumption, which I think is still true. The bigger the bill, the easier it is to pass. And, yeah, I mean, the no, other yeah. I mean, there's there are also things that people across the board want and they somehow never get passed. And I can think of two immigration uh, provisions like that. One is dreamers, legal legal residents, possible path to citizenship. And another is um, high end visas. Uh, you know, these are so, so broadly popular that they keep being saved for, you know, the big immigration bill that everyone's going to have to vote to pass because these things are in it or, you know, this sort of thing. They're sweeteners and, and, uh, and, and it's, there's avoidance about passing them on their own because then they lose their value in some bigger deal. It's crazy. I'm remembering this from about 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, so this, um, yeah, that making the sausage is tough for people to see. Um, but, <laughs> right. right. But the last Congress did remarkable things. And I don't, I, I mean, infrastructure did have bipartisan support, but climate change doesn't. And they had enormous success addressing climate change for the first time. Um, they, they got some bipartisan help in chips and science. That was great. Um, but, you know, the American Rescue Plan had no bipartisan support and they got it passed. All of these things, they really, it was a remarkable Congress with a thin majority in the House and no majority in the Senate. It, it was good. It was good. I, I do think that um, conservative views on climate change are changing. Uh, I think a lot of people are from states that are having a hard time, you know, eastern coastal states, well, Florida for one, South Carolina. You know, these are the Georgia also states that are very much dealing with climate change and um so and and also I think it's becoming more clear that um, there are economic benefits as as part of this shift. Although uh, one thing we haven't talked about and it may not even be known out there in Chicago very much, but Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin 
he turned down a Ford plant to make batteries because it was a partner with the Chinese um, or a Chinese company. And it was 2,500 jobs in a depressed area of the state. And um, it's it was really um, unexpected to me anyway to read about this in the paper. And it's, you know, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, the governor, she just jumped right on it. Well, we're happy to have this Ford plant making mm-hmm. um, batteries for electric vehicles. And so, I'm, you know, I think that he was probably trying to out China, the China people who may run for president, which he wants to do, I believe. Uh, he's a one-term limited governor. Um, but, you know, the other part is what what governor turns down 2,500 do- jobs for apparently a, a conservative part of the state that's that's depressed and has been trying to get jobs there for years? It's, that's a really good question. You know, but I think there's an answer to that question, because here in the Midwest, Ron Johnson, a United States senator, did the same thing. He argued that and that uh, a plant that was going to be unionized shouldn't be in the state, no matter how many jobs it brought. And he said they should send it somewhere else. Um, and, uh, and, and all of this goes to um, a feeling that if democracy doesn't work, if we can't deliver for people, then maybe it's not the right system and we need to have strong men. Maybe we need to have, you know, our own version of, of uh, like, you know, Hungarian democracy, right? Which isn't democracy uh-huh. anymore. Um, and, and I think the, the autocrats in the country know that and they just want it, the system to fail which explains a lot of what's going on in Congress and a lot of what's going on explains why you'd walk away from jobs. Well, you know, Youngkin, this is not the image that he's been cultivating. He's been trying to kind of play both both sides of the the mega fence, if you will, um, you know, campaigning with people like Carrie Lake, rejecting the factory. But, uh, you know, He's he's been a finance guy. He runs around in, a, in his fleece vest, and um, you know he he had a very wise campaign flank uh, about getting rid of a tax on food. I believe it was. It was just something very kitchen table, uh, you know, that most people could identify with. And of course, schools. Although I'm not sure people are getting what they voted for on that. But he, you know, he he went the culture war route on uh, on critical race theory and that sort of thing. Created a deadline yes. for people to call in, you know, teaching of something divisive, whatever. You know, it was very vague yep. and didn't work out. <laughs> yep. So, well, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting race. Sorry. Sorry to get into no. politics. <laughs> no, I, I love politics. Happy to talk about it all day long. Um, and particularly Republican politics, which I don't understand. So, uh, I mean, you know, we've got Ron DeSantis trying to run as far to the fascist corner of, of the universe as possible. I mean, I, Jill, you're going to have to explain this to me. I don't understand. If you are a young woman, if you're a high school junior and you want to play sports in Florida, you have to report on your menstrual cycles and, and you know, be subject to potentially being groped by an administrator to be sure that, like, you're actually a, a, a young woman who wants to play sports. How is that possible? You know, that was a headline that kind of went by my screen right as I got on the phone with you. And I I haven't looked into that. But, I mean, I was, you know, the uh, Bulwark, which is a fascinating website these days, they have a podcast where right before the election they talked to about nine former Trump, Trump to Biden voters. 
And um, the conversation about from one woman had just dropped her daughter off at college for the first time. And her daughter said, Mom, I removed my uh, period calendar from my phone. You know, there's ways to track menstrual periods. And all the women just from all there were three or four states, they all chimed in. Oh, yes, you can't do that anymore. You have to get rid of that because they'll be, you know, tracking you across state lines to see, you know, if you're planning an abortion or, you know, if your period doesn't come, why not? You know, where did you go to get it terminated? Or, you know, it's just it was an incredible conversation. Um, Jill, I need to interrupt you for a piece. Jill, I need to interrupt you. I'm sorry for a piece of breaking news for everyone. (laughs) The United States States has, has just shot down the Chinese balloon. It had floated off the Carolina coast, and there's an operation underway right now to uh, uh, pick up the pieces that have landed. Uh, they didn't want to shoot it down over land for fear of what it would do. It floated off to the coast, and it was shot down. So, um, Well, some people wanted to shoot it down over land. Well, I don't believe it. I think they just wanted to change the subject because, it, you know, it, it showed up, Jill, the same day as some fabulous economic news. Right. So if the United States is going to say, look, we're creating new jobs at a record pace. Inflation is down. Um, uh, the, the workforce is expanding. All that was good news, which meant that these guys had to have something else to talk about. And what shinier object is there for these kids than a balloon? Anyway, that balloon has now been shot down um, uh, and we will gather the debris um, and see where this takes us diplomatically. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, breaking news is breaking news. No, no, I'm a news person. I, I appreciate knowing that. I yeah. I thought it was, um, I understand what you're saying about the diversionary tactic. Um, I, I just felt like, yes, they're saying shoot it down, and it doesn't matter where it is or if it kills somebody or a few people or however many people. You know, it, it was... Um, you're right. It was just kind of let's change the subject, even if it's dangerous, because we're not in the presidency. We don't have to make this decision and it's not going to happen. So let's just say it. But they went out and posed with with, you know, <laughs> with automatic weapons or pictures of J.D. Vance sitting there in his dress shoes and his Hyundai attire, you know, <laughs> holding an AR-15 as if they could like shoot into the you know, into the stratosphere, something completely ridiculous can't happen. But here we are with our, you know, semi-automatics and we're going to shoot down the Chinese balloon. (laughs) You know, well, okay. So people are going to realize now that, that, uh, that Biden actually had this in mind and they were waiting for a safe time to do it. Um, And why would they, Signal that to the Chinese before it actually happens, because what if it never got? I mean, you know, it's just, I I think people. Jill, they will never mention it again. It's gone. They'll be on to something else. They they will discover critical race theory, you know, in a box hidden, you know, in Rhode Island. The subject will change immediately. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, you're right. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot. Of saying, look at what they didn't do when they were in power. They didn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. They Uh, didn't do infrastructure, even though it had bipartisan support. They couldn't do it because they can't govern. Well, the things they want to do are not popular, and you know they, they. It's it's so now you know they're in their safe space. They've got the House by four or five votes, and uh, they can uh, say whatever they want. I just don't think it's going to work. And I don't, to get back to where we were before the shoot down, um, 
I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that, and I've said this many times before in in columns and, you know, sort of wrote it out, written it out, reported it out, but I don't think that Ron DeSantis is going to have as much appeal outside Florida as he has within it, not by a long shot. Um, you know, people there seem to be willing to, to have this trade-off, and I'm sure some of what he's doing really appeals to people. I mean, he may have gotten this far on the strength of how he handled COVID, which, you know, Florida is pretty lucky that way, given the weather. They don't even have hallways at some of the schools there. I remember from when I visited, they just walk outside. It's never too cold to be outside. Uh, you know, that's a big advantage when you're fighting a virus like COVID. Anyway, that's, that's, that's. A yeah, it's not, I'm speaking to you from fight. Chicago where it's nine degrees. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Oh, or, or it was nine this morning. It may have warmed up to 16. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, you see my, yes, you, you see what I'm saying. So anyway, people yeah. like what he did. And, uh, you know, I have friends who are moving down there and traveling down there. And uh, I, you know, my, our family, my husband always, you know, it's like the economic miracle can be his, but why should I contribute to it? Yeah, that kind of, uh, I, I just don't think it's going to work outside of Florida or too many places outside of Florida. Once people realize, you know, so many of the things that are happening there are pressure to be like him, pressure to be people like him, pressure against people who aren't like him. And it's, 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 well, it, it depresses me very much and makes me feel sad. Well, but I hear both optimism and sadness. You're pointing out that there is a coercive power in America. It's a minority, but it's coercive, right? Trying to pressure people to be like them. But yet the great majority of us are a big, diverse and determined people that, that as you say, outside of Florida, he's going to fail. And Donald Trump failed, what, two elections in or three elections in a row. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I'm more optimistic than pessimistic, but, it's a, but I recognize it's a huge fight and one of consequence that we're in. Well, the, the, the thing that worries me the most is the structural um, nature of how the United States was set up. You know, here I am. I've been writing politics my whole life, covering campaigns my whole life. I've lived in D.C. since 1982. I haven't been able to vote for anybody for the Senate. And I have a, a, a House member who can't vote on the floor. She's a delegate. I mean, you know, this is uh, this is uh, crazy. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, I agree. We, I we mean, have to Senate feel in particular. And the Electoral College, of course, So, and, and the gerrymandering and things like the North Carolina Supreme Court, you know, one seat flips. They're now 5-4 Republican or whatever they are. They're reconsidering cases on voting and, and um, mapping from last year. So, you know, things are never um, settled in a way that would be reflective of, of what people are thinking. I, I just, I'm, you know, I, I feel like some of these structural inequities could be solidified and cemented in coming years. Well, it's clear that one side wants to do that, for sure. And the other side wants to fight it. Um, and Ground Zero has been in Wisconsin, um, where the Republicans have solidified their structural uh, advantages. And yet, through very hard organizing, you know, that we've held them at bay a little bit. Um, and taken the statewide offices. So I, I'm, again, I'm more optimistic. It's harder to gerrymander governor's races, you know, and we uh-huh, did better absolutely. than we thought. 
Um, state legislatures are, are tough, but um, uh, I, again, it's a, we're in the middle of a you know three election cycle fight at least, and one down, a couple to go uh, in order to push them back. But we've been through this before in our history, just not recently. You know, I mean, I, before you got on, I was saying, like, how long did it take uh, the Jeffersonian Republican, you know, Democratic Republicans to oust the Federalists and put them into the ash bin of history? Right. It took a while, but they did it. Um, they had organized them. And we're, we're in that same that same kind of place. Yeah. Well, there are bright spots, I should say, Michigan, Minnesota, um, and states with referendums and initiatives where, where voters get direct votes. Um, so, and, and voters themselves, you know, when they vote on a higher minimum wage or Medicaid expansion or, or, or voting rights, that sort of thing, it, it, they're often very popular. So, you know. Um, right. North Carolina. I mean, the other thing about, about um, government that's not representative is that it delivers terrible results to the people in the states because it's corrupt when when you when you can't hold um, uh, people accountable because they're in districts where they're never really held to account, and you see this in Ohio where a state that once was on top of the world really in terms of uh, uh, its economy it had you know was home to Fortune 500 companies, but they just delivered terrible results to their people and and. Terrible corruption that two of the biggest corruption scandals in the country. Um, you know, that that's what happens. I mean, when, in Illinois, it was one party control and we're Democrats and you had some terrible corruption scandals. So uh, we don't deliver good results this way. Right. So you're saying we need we need to work together. No, I'm saying people will move. I'm saying that people yeah. will move. People will people will leave the states that deliver terrible results. It's happened in Ohio. Um, it happened in Illinois. Although Illinois has gotten better, um, it, it, it people you know Americans they don't want to live where people are treat them terribly, where no one pays attention to their concerns, and where they see their politicians engaged in. You know that's why journalism is so unbelievably important. Because imagine how much worse it would be if people didn't know. Thank you for saying that. We need all the help we can get. Yeah. Well, so, so I'm not a I'm not a pessimist, but I agree with you. We are looking at a real fight. Yeah, I mean, I think that may be just sort of the the chronic condition of the United States push pull. You know, um, maybe we'll get some structural changes that we need. Just um, maybe a, some kind of federal standard on voting which would be good. Um, maybe um, a Supreme Court that restores some um, fairness to mapping, fairness to campaign contributions. Uh, yep. Yep. And, it, you know, some of this may fall of its own weight, like you're saying, people leaving or people voting differently. So I, I think we do have to take the long view. Well, look what happened in Kansas. In Kansas, after the Dobbs decision, they were so sure that they had everything in hand the right wing that they put an anti-abortion amendment to their state constitution on the ballot immediately after Dobbs. And the good people of Kansas, and I, these are not Democrats, went out and told them to go jump in the Missouri River. 
That was really, really surprising. I, I mean, not not that the voters voted that way in Kansas, but that the, the conservatives thought they had it in the bag because, you know, none of the polling supports the positions they're supporting. And I mean, I got to hand it to them. They don't seem to care. Right. It's their conviction. They don't believe they don't believe in democracy. They believe that um, they should just govern, period. And those of us who think differently, uh, our votes don't count. That's why the House leadership today is filled with people who stood up and voted on the floor not to count Americans' votes in a presidential election. It's true. And uh, it's only a fair election if they win. Yeah. Well, that's how Carrie Lake can sit in Arizona and look deep into her Manhattan, some dark bar, and imagine that she's governor. But it isn't, it isn't happening. That's an interesting image. Let me do it at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I'm sure she's doing it at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate our time together. Um, it went by very fast. So we have to do it again. Um, we have you have like a half a minute left. Not well, we don't have any time left, and I have more to talk to you about. Can we can we do it another time? We can. I enjoyed it very much. Right. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. We have to take a break for the news right now because I've gone over. I'll be back with you. Stay tuned. Don't go away. You're listening to the Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT eight twenty. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Uh, a little after 2 o'clock here in the very chilly upper Midwest. And I am joined now by Allison Donahue, a reporter with Michigan Advance. Hi, Allison. Hi, Edwin. Uh, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I- I'm well. You know, we hearty uh, Great Lakes people don't mind the cold. No, no, and it's starting to warm up here in Michigan, so... Yeah, what was it, 15, 16? Yeah, I mean, warm-up is yeah. relative. <laughs> okay, so what, look, look, you are, you are um, a journalist, and there are stories to be told around the country that need to be told that um, it's harder and harder to tell because your profession is under such stress. What, what was your path into journalism? Um, well, I started in May 2019, um, graduated from college, and I went straight into journalism. I started at a small paper in central Minnesota um, and then came over to start writing uh, about Capitol News in Lansing and Michigan. Um, so it's been pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, I always knew that, that this was the route that I, that I wanted to take with my life. I guess, but why? I mean, a, a generation before you, it was Watergate that drew a whole generation of people to want to be reporters. What was it that drew you? Yeah, I I just like telling people's stories. I'm not necessarily in it for breaking news, but being able to tell individual stories that are unique and impactful beyond the individual person is really what drives me. So um, let's talk about Michigan and some of those stories. I mean, I, many of us, I, I particularly was thrilled by the voters in Michigan during the last election cycle. I, I saw people reject extremism to opt for leadership that put progress over politics. Um, but I don't think the GOP in your state got the message. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a new 
yet another, maybe it's, maybe it's new. You can tell me if it's new or it's just reconstituted with a new name group meddling with education in the state. Uh, they call themselves the great schools initiative. Uh, can you, can you tell everybody about that? Yeah. So great schools initiative. It's pretty new. Um, it's, been around since about the fall. I think it began right before the election. Um, And so far, their main focus is on sex education in Michigan. And um, the way that they see sex education is a little bit broader than how it's typically defined, but um, they're really going toward getting any talks of gender identity, sexual orientation, um, transgender issues, out of schools, not just in these sex ed classes, courses that happen for a week out of a school year, two weeks out of a school year, um, but out of schools completely, and that's their main goal. They're also, you know, um, targeting books similar to what we've seen in other groups, um, book banning, books that talk on, um, touch these subjects as well. Um, so that's their main thing. They're pretty broad, and they, they have a lot of other groups kind of joining them, like Moms for Liberty is um, one group that they're kind of working side by side with. Okay. So when you say they want to uh, end anything a school does that might draw attention to uh, gender issues, does that mean that uh, if somebody's wearing a rain wearing a rainbow pin, that they they're against that, or if there's a rainbow flag, it should come down in classrooms. Is that what that is? Yeah, yeah. I, I um, see. And what if a school has you know has like I don't know doesn't have gendered bathrooms, but has like a bathroom like somebody would have in a house that you know just people knock on the door and they take their turn. Is that also not allowed? Yeah, that's another another thing that they're trying to let parents opt out of is the use or even teaching of gender-neutral bathrooms. So if there is a gender-neutral bathroom in a school, like, like you know, if, if there's like an, an old classroom and there's a bathroom, like, like it's a converted room and there's a bathroom, but it's just one and people took their turn using it, they're saying that it should be boarded up or just their kids should have to hold it all day long. I mean, what are they really saying? I mean, I guess I don't know specifically there. They would be targeting the schools. That would be an easy way to target a school, I guess, and say that, you know, I opted my kid out of this. You um, violated that. and So have to build a new bathroom. Like have to use school money to instead of to buy books, I guess, because they don't need to buy books, just to build a new bathroom to solve that problem. Yeah, I, I suppose that would be that'd be the solution. I, I, I'm I'm laughing because it just seems so ridiculous. But I guess it's for some people it's it's real. Do you know where their funding comes from? For where who's paying for this kind of thing? You know, I don't know about the funding for sure. I know that they have ties with the Thomas More Society in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. They've they've got. Um, one of the uh, co-founders said that they have the resources for lawsuits if they find that schools are violating 
um, what they've listed out in their opt-out forms for parents to to turn into the school district. Well, you have to you skip a step. So they have created opt-out yeah. forms that they're passing out to parents that say what my child is opting out of not just the sex ed class, but opting out of what out of school if the school has a book in the library out of or are they saying my child is opting out which means you have to change your curriculum yeah that's more that's more of what they're saying they're telling the schools um to change um so they call it rogue sex ed um let me back up a little bit more so michigan is an opt-out which means parents are notified with enough time um, to opt their students out of of their sex ed class. Um, So parents will get a letter sent home, and then if they don't want their kid in that class, they'll turn an opt-out form and it goes in the student's file. What GSI is trying to do is they have their own opt-out form that they have written um, that parents can print off sign and then walk into the school office and say, I want this in my student's file. This is their new opt-out form. And that opt-out form, I would read it to you, but I don't know that we have the time. It's pretty lengthy of what they're what they're asking. Um, but it does, it, it talks about, you know, what's typically in an opt-out form for typical sex ed classes. So I'm talking about abortion or IUDs, condoms. Um, Michigan's already an abstinence state, so we stress abstinence in our sex ed classes. But um, then it goes on to opt out of human sexuality. And so that is kind of where the rogue sex ed part starts. Um, And that includes, you know, teaching or discussing about pronouns other than the student's biology. So it's not allowing teachers to... Um, refer to students by the pronouns that they prefer and that they identify by. Um, it's also saying, you know, no discussion about transsexual health care and teachers aren't allowed to display pride flags or trans flags or have gay pride stickers. Um, and the list goes on. So, um, And anything to do with, with sexuality? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a pretty expensive list. I, well, so how, I mean, how does a kid read Romeo and Juliet? I, I don't get it. How does how do they, I mean, half of literature, certainly literature for young people is about falling in love. I mean, and it involves sexuality. How do they, they, that's okay or not okay? I mean, it, it would depend on whether the parent wants to complain, I suppose, um, but it does say they're opting their students out of teaching about explicit heterosexual, um, quote, sexual acts, fantasies, self-pleasure, self-exploration. That's from the opt-out form. So, yeah, I mean, it's not um, just focused on the LGBTQ students and LGBTQ issues, but all human sexuality altogether. So like you're saying, that is kind of bigger than what a lot of schools are are ready to take on. You know, if there are lawsuits, you know, I mean, almost every school is probably violating one of these things on the list. Um, well, let's, let, 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 I would like to use somewhat different language. Almost every school is te- that teaches about 
humanity, teaches about humanity, mm-hmm. and, and these guys want to make that illegal. So I, I'm not sure that the schools are vile. They're certainly not complying with the coercive order of, of a rogue group that thinks it can dictate how, I guess, that thinks it can make political organizing. Because really what you're saying is they're trying to organize groups to take on their schools. It sounds more like political organizing than anything else yeah. to me. No, you're right. I, I use violate. That's that's more their language. That's kind of they're waiting for schools to either fully reject the, their opt out form, um, and then they're prepped to you know go the legal route that way. Yeah. Or um, as they say, they're ready for schools to violate. So um, or just not give in to their request laid out. Michigan is. Michigan has a um, certain strain in this. And I love Michigan. It's one of my favorite states. And I'm, and I, but, but there's a strain in the state of, of like, let's just take our guns and do what we need to do. I mean, is, is this group tied to, you know, coercive shows of force at school board meetings? Are they going to say, yeah, we're going to go to court, but you know what? We're all going to get, pick up our AR-15s and come to the next school board meeting. You know, I can't tie them to anything that aggressive. I know that there are some parents who I recognize that are in this group that I've seen around it. Uh, Moms for Liberties event, Moms for Liberty events, or um, school board meetings where it either never got aggressive physically or violent in that way, but you know, they're screaming, they're shouting, people are standing up, they're obviously upset. Those types of school me- board meetings, um, I see some connect connections between the groups there um and yeah i mean there are some really recognizable folks because of what they've done in school districts and school board meetings um that are really involved with this gsi group um but i i don't know about any anything else so so yeah so okay well it's it's interesting so uh, this is really important and thank you for helping us understand this we got this group They've got their own form, not a government form. They're organizing to get people to sign it. And it's all about making, particularly making gay and trans people invisible, like they might have been in the 1950s, right? We know, we do know from sociology work, from medical work, that this will lead to suicides, that this will lead to um, depression. But it doesn't matter, right? Because that's not the point. So... Very depressing. You you also but you had, you reported on something else recently that was interesting to me. I think it was last month. A study by the Economic Policy Institute that linked abortion rights with other social and economic outcomes. Do you remember that piece? Um. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. I do. Can you talk to us about it? Because I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I mean. It's something that we talk about here a lot in Michigan about how um, especially black women are much more disenfranchised in their access to abortion care um, and how it holds so many families and women back. Um, so yeah, it, it is a real issue. And um, it, yeah, it, it definitely affects um how people are able to get out of certain situations or keeping people in different socioeconomic patterns um, that they should be able to break out of. 
Yeah, I mean, your reporting uh, said that, um, according to the Economic Policy Institute, I mean, states mm-hmm. that that uh, allowed abortions had better social and economic outcomes across the board than states that did not, and particularly bigger gains for people of color and, and for women-led uh, families. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, Michigan is now, it was questionable for a second, but Michigan is now is one of the states in the country that does protect abortion um, and access to abortion here. Um, and, yeah, the, this study shows that states that protect abortion, they have um, higher minimum wages, you know, more folks who are eligible for uninsurance are actually receiving that support in states that have abortion. Um, so it is a, it's a really interesting tie because, um, you know, this is also another part of the conversation that we're seeing a lot in Michigan about how reproductive rights are considered economic rights and inclusivity and just like, um, in a broader way, Governor Whitmer during her state of the state address said, you know, bigotry is bad for business. And I think that translates a lot here um, with reproductive rights as well. Yeah. So, um, well, what are the issues that we should think about arising in the next few months in Michigan that we should all be paying attention to? Um, you know, there's a lot. I mean, we are gearing up in our first term. We're a month deep into our first term in the first 40, in the last 40 years where we've had a Democratic trifecta where, you know, Democrats control the governorship, the House and the Senate. We haven't had that in decades. Um, So there's going to be so much moving here. I mean, we've already taken steps, um, to implement a few of them, like repealing Michigan's 1931 abortion ban that is still on the books. Um, It's, you know, moot right now because of Proposal 3 that passed in November, but that's a big one. Um, You know, education's always top of mind here in Michigan. Um, The economy's really top of mind right now with high inflation and trying to attract more businesses. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of priorities um, that folks are really going to be pushing now that we, we have some new leadership in the state. Yeah, and but your state is known for um, uh, reaction when one side pushes forward. So um, right. we, we have a Democratic trifecta. There's a hunger to move the state forward after uh, so long on the other side. Um, and steps are going to get taken that are good for business, bad for bigotry. But this uh, fault line on gender that you talked about at the beginning, it looks like the right is going to focus on that, right? They're just going to focus laser-like on that and say, I don't know what. I mean, I, and where does it stop? Do they, have they gone, they've gone after books. Have they gone after um, uh, places that have, I don't know, um, uh Drag shows? Um, yeah, I mean, the conversation about, you know, not allowing children near 
um, drag shows has happened in Michigan. I, I think about that question a lot, though. Like, what's it going to stop? I mean, I follow schools. That's one of my main beats here. Um, and it seems like every seven months or so, six months or so, I'm talking to a teacher or a parent or someone with the teacher's union or, um, you know, folks who are just really invested in schools. And at the end of every conversation, we're like, all right, so what do you think is going to be the last straw? What's finally going to end this? And, you know, we had that conversation when there were fights about mask mandates or getting kids back into school buildings. And then we saw it again um, with the book bans and CRT and um, conversations about DEI in classes. And it, it keeps happening. So it's like they're throwing whatever they, they have at, at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, which I don't know when that's going to end, but but you're right. Um, now that Democrats really took these high offices in Michigan and have control over, you know, um, the trifecta, we're really seeing Republicans um, take control in more local areas, um, like the school board. That was a huge focus in November was um, – taking control of these school boards, but we're seeing it in local county boards too. I don't know um, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with Ottawa County in Michigan, Um, but they had a group of far-right Republicans take over the majority of their um, board of commissioners in Ottawa County. And, you know, the first day they, they scrapped the DEI department, they fired their health director, they um, hired John Gibbs, as their um, county administrator. So they're right now it looks like Republicans are really focusing on local government and what they can do there to make changes now that they've lost, um, you know, the House and the Senate. Well, I wish them, I wish them uh, luck in that. Local government is less likely to be ideological and more likely to be practical because people, you know what, it's their lives every day. You know, if they don't keep the schools open, um, if they uh, fail to get the bus to show up, right, they're going to hear about it. So I, maybe they'll learn something about America from this and be less ideological and more practical. Let, you know, in, I want to ask you a different question. Um, around the country, your governor um, became much better known in the last few years, and her yeah. ability to, to work with Republicans and with business leaders, as well as her uh, clear um, political savvy, has certainly caught a lot of people's attention. Um, is there chatter about her uh, possibly trying to run for national office um, in Michigan? Um, you know, a lot of folks are talking about it. She won't. Um, she's been asked quite a few times if she's, you know, planning to run for president and um, she's not entertaining that conversation right now, at least publicly. Um, She's really, you know, she says she's focused on Michigan right now, getting the job done here. She just won another four years. Um, You know, I I feel like a lot of people want to see her um, take on a more national role, but right now she seems pretty dedicated to Michigan. Okay. And, um, you have a United States senator stepping down, so there's going to be some jockeying to run for that seat. What does that look like? 
Um, you know, again, I don't, that conversation's also really up in the air. I think a lot of people have some ideas of what they want to see, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think people are pretty hesitant to really, um, really put their name out there right now, just seeing, you know, what's going to happen, um, and what's happening here right now. Okay. Well, you don't want to obviously, yeah, get out too early. That, that politically, yeah. that's not such a great thing. All right. Let me let me focus back on uh, uh, the state parties. Have you had a chance to look at like what's the leadership of the GOP in Michigan look like? What's it look like on the Democratic side? I think both have leadership uh, challenges, right? Um, yeah, I haven't been following that too closely. I know the Republican Party was pretty shaken up after um, the November election. They they were really looking to place blame somewhere. A lot of it ended up on um, their gubernatorial candidate, Tudor Dixon, and how she handled her race and the priorities she chose. Um, so it's, it's a messy spot to be right now, but I, I haven't really been... Um, Following the leadership race um, or conversations about leadership and what's going on there too much um, post-election. Okay, um, I don't know. I don't want to ask you out of your out of your area, right? So, so your focus um, though is a lot on education. Do you also do higher education? I, the yeah, University I of Michigan is a national treasure. Is it in trouble? Um, GOP going after that, too? You know, I I don't know exactly if the University of Michigan is in trouble. They've had um, some issues over the years with leadership. Um, Same as Michigan State, you know. um, Our our two biggest universities have had a couple of tumultuous years there um, with well, Michigan now. State had a Michigan State had a scandal that was awful yeah. with those athletes. Right. Yeah. And and we've seen the repercussions of that and how yeah. that has you know come about. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that that the university's in trouble. I don't know. Um, okay. That's a um, do you see Do you see any lingering um, impact of Betsy DeVos in the state? in her hand and the way they think about education. Yeah, of course. I mean, she is the the ultimate champion of, of school choice, and she her, her money has power here in the state. Um, she, and she has enough money to keep the school choice and charter school conversation happening in Michigan. Um, and she has, yeah, she absolutely still does have a hand in Michigan's um, education, even though she... She kind of grew out of Michigan a little bit during Trump's administration, obviously. Um, so, yeah, yeah, she she's still very much a powerful force. It's hard to write about education without um, talking about a lot of the efforts that she has either funded or herself championed. Um, has she weighed in at all on the topic that you and I began talking about, Ellison, on uh, the so-called Great Schools Initiative? Um, I haven't seen anything specifically about her referring to Great Schools Initiative. 
Um, so far, the group has really been flying pretty under the radar, um, and I haven't seen any super big names really talking about them. Um, Moms for Liberty, obviously, I, I keep going back to them, but they're so closely tied. I mean, GSI is really calling for Moms for Liberty parents to, to join them. Um, they obviously have a much greater um, national presence and um, much larger supporters nationally. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen any big names coming out for GSI yet. I really am still waiting to see the impact of um, what this Operation Opt-Out is going to look like for them. They were planning for February to be their big month of inundating schools with these forms. So we'll see. I mean, this month, if it really starts happening and schools really are receiving a lot of these um, opt-out forms, we might see folks like maybe Betsy DeVos or other um, Republican education figures taking a, a good look at GSI and, um, mm-hmm. and supporting mm-hmm. them. Well, it's depressing because um, uh, teaching is a very hard job. It's been much harder in the last few years. And uh, the, the burden that all of this politics puts on teachers is nearly uh, unimaginable when all they want to do is support the children that they see every day and help them learn. Um, I, I really appreciate your covering this. I really appreciate your work. Uh, I'm glad you went into journalism and uh I'm a big fan of uh, your publication, Advance. I think it's done a great job and a service to the state. So um, thank you for your time, Allison. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I I had a good time. Great. We'll do it again then. All right, everybody. Thank you. We're going to take a break and turn back to Arizona, where uh, much has happened since we've checked in there. Cameron Stevenson will join me right after this. We're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. Um, As you guys know, from time to time, we turn uh, southwest, and I like to check in with Cameron Stevenson, who's the managing editor of the Copper Courier. It's a digital newsroom in Arizona, and we talk about that state's politics and journalism. And um, uh, Cameron is joining me again. Hey, Cameron. Hey, Edwin. Thanks for having me on. So um, I was just talking with a reporter in Michigan uh, before you came on. It's a state where Democrats did really well in the last election cycle. And yet the uh, right wing is trying sort of new tactics at the school level to uh, push LGBTQ people back into the shadows. Are you seeing anything like that in Arizona? Yes, unfortunately, we're we're seeing a lot of that here. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, anti-trans bills that are you know being pushed through the legislature. A lot of um, LGBTQ plus exclusive, uh, you know, meant to to harm or or discourage students from from expressing themselves and, and learning who uh, who they are and feeling comfortable being themselves uh, in in a public space like school. Um, so yeah, yeah, we're seeing it a lot, unfortunately. Um, you have a new governor, new Democratic governor. Uh, I know her opponent, uh, Miss Lake, has not conceded, but that 
doesn't matter. It doesn't make her the governor, whatever she says. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, yeah. which is like at the bar in Mar-a-Lago and having a time of her life. That's great. But what's like, how is uh, Governor Hobbs doing? Uh, you know, she's she's doing uh, a pretty impressive job as far as hitting the ground running and, uh, you know, taking the job very seriously um, and also staying true to what she promised while she was on the campaign trail and, uh, and true to her roots as a member of the legislature and, and former secretary of state. Um, you know, actually speaking of the the anti-trans bills that are making their way through our state legislature, um, as soon as the first one passed through committee, um, you know, Hobbs, Hobbs' team came out almost immediately and said, this, this is a waste of time. It's dead. I'm, I'm vetoing this. Like, there's, there's no way this right. is going to see the light of day. Yeah. And so that, that's very encouraging. Um, you know, it's, it's something, it's a, a buffer we didn't have uh, six months ago uh, or last legislative session or for the last uh, decade. Um, and so it is really encouraging to see her do things like that. Um, she was also very quick to get our state budget, um, you know, her, her budget proposal out to, um, to the legislature, um, who, you know, the, the Republican-led legislature here is very opposed to it. Um, but it was really good to see things um, that were designed to help working class uh, Arizonans, um, you know, things such as removing a, uh, a tax on, on feminine hygiene products, as well as uh, removing a tax, on, a sales tax on diapers. Uh, which would would help with a, t- a ton of working families um, and yeah. so things like that. Also, a lot of policy geared towards um, protecting our water rights here in Arizona, which is, has been a growing problem as our drought has continued. Um, and then also, you know, upholstering and, and restoring trust and, and faith in our election systems. Well, water was on my list to talk to you about uh, because I read um, that Arizona, California, and a couple other states failed to come up with an agreement on the use of water from the Colorado River and that somehow the federal government is going to end up having to mediate that dispute. That cannot go well for anybody. No, uh, and it's it'll probably hit us um, harder than most, um, not just because we are, you know, we have a vast desert here, um, but we also recently found out, and again, this is something Governor Hobbs uh, revealed that her predecessor, uh, Doug Ducey, had been, been hiding from the public, um, is a water report that a large portion of um, the Phoenix Valley, the western side of it, where we've been seeing a lot of development over the past several years, um, the developers have been skirting around um, water water requirements. Um, just to put it shortly, any time a development is built in certain parts of Arizona where the deserts are, where the water is most needed, um, the developer has to um, prove that there is a way to get water to the, these people who or these businesses who will be living or working in this area for 100 years. Um, and a water report was put together last year um, highlighting that large sections of our of, of our suburbs don't have that. The, the developers weren't were, were building without give, getting this 100 year security. Um, but oh my gosh, that's know. terrible! Yeah, no, it's it's uh, detrimental. Um, you know, and in, in people moving into these neighborhoods, they have no idea. Um, you know, they're buying a home under the assumption that everything is fine, that, that they're going to have what they need. Um, but they, you know, they might not even have enough water secured to last a generation. Um, oh, wow. And, that, and that's that, a scandal. That, that's a huge scandal. 
Yeah, and the, the, the report outlining all this was hidden um, by the previous governor. He refused to let it go out. Um, you know, the people on the water board, the people who put the report together were against his decision, but, you know, they, they were unable to act. And shortly after Governor Hobbs was, um, was put into, the off, into office, she found out about this report and she put it out to the public. Um, and so now that's, you know, that's something directly we're dealing with. And that's something where no matter what the water rights go as far as, you know, federal regulation or sharing water with other states, um, us, you know, we're already going to be behind with, with things like this um, because, you know, there were short-sighted decisions in, in the name of, you know, growth and um, favoring developers. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, but they pale in um, importance when you have hundreds of thousands of people moving into brand new developments that where their water isn't assured. That's just um, unthinkable, I guess. It, you would, that, I mean, this is why government regulation is invented, right? To protect people mm-hmm. from exactly this kind of abuse. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, that coupled with um, something our new attorney general is dealing with, which is um, a deal made uh, by previous administrations to uh, basically give water to Saudi Arabia for their crops for free. Um, so they're taking our groundwater. Um, and we're already actually seeing communities who have run out of water because they weren't guaranteed a hundred year supply. Um, and so they're having to haul water from, you know, other cities, other municipalities, um, or, you know, to hire a private contractor to drive, you know, these big diesel trucks uh, full of water miles and miles up into these, these communities. And, um, it, yeah, you're exactly right. It's, you know, these regulations were put in place years ago to protect us now and future generations of Arizonans. And those regulations being ignored, um, we're going to see some drastic consequences because of that. We sure are. Wow. And your state is more complicated than than many my listeners can understand because you have an enormous um, uh, Navajo uh, reservation, uh, and they have their own rights to water. Yes, yeah, so, you know we we have um, you know we have I believe more reser- uh, Native American reservations in our state than any other state in the country. Um, all you know with sovereign rights, with um, with claims, with uh, with you know settlements between our government and theirs, um, guaranteeing them water as well. And so it's you know it's it's not just working with the you know the state governor and and the different mayors and county leaders. Uh, you know, it's working with tribal leaders, with the, the, the president of the Navajo Nation and, and the other tribes in our state, as well as working with, you know, other states and uh, and the federal government. And so it's, uh, you know, it's it's a lot to figure out uh, and it's very complex uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's not something that goes away. Well, there's a great book to be written here, but it's going to take a whole book to explain yeah. it. All right, well, let's leave water for a minute, even though, I, again, I don't think anything's as important, but let's leave it. Um, I, you know, I talked a few weeks ago to a reporter in Tennessee who described, the, you know, the Republican legislature's efforts to, like, strip Nashville of, of any authority it had and to remap it so Democrats would have no real voting power. Do I understand that maybe the members of the Arizona legislature are thinking about something similar with Maricopa County? 
Yeah, yeah, they've, uh, so what, they, what they've proposed, they did this last legislative session, and, and they're trying it again, um, is they're trying to break up Maricopa County into, I believe, five different counties. Um, and, you know, if, if you're coming in from out of state, you know, maybe, it's, yeah, how, many, how many counties are in your state? Well, 102. You know, yeah, so Arizona has 15. <laughs> yeah. um, yep. And so when you, when you hear that and you come from somewhere where there's 100 plus counties, you, you know, you say to yourself, oh, you know, it makes sense. Uh, but really, the, the maps that they drew are designed to uh, disenfranchise voters. They're meant to, um, to lessen the voting power of, you know, black communities, Native American communities, uh, our Latino population, um, and, and build Republican strongholds. Um, and it's, it's, it's a plan that, you know, they proposed again. I honestly don't see it going anywhere just like last year. Um, I don't think it has enough support in the legislature. Um, I, I think it also creates an issue that Republicans don't want to have to campaign against later on, which is the development of four new government entities, um, each yep, budget yep. and additional regulations, yep. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, everything they they espouse to be against. And so I, I think it's a, just a performative measure um, meant to get some people excited, some people um, meant to fundraise off of. So fundraising off the impossible makes me um, want to ask you about a woman named Wendy Rogers. Can, can you remind us all who she is and tell us what she's up to these days? Yes. Um, so Wendy Rogers uh, is a member of our state legislature. Um, she is also uh, a supporter of Donald Trump. The January 6th insurrection um, has denied the election results for elections other than her own for the past two election cycles. Um, and she's also the chair of the Senate Elections Committee. Um, so she is a, a very far right extremist uh, individual and in a very dangerous position of power. Yeah, and she's doing a lot of fundraising off of, I mean, the moment the last election was certified, the moment uh, uh, you, 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 Governor Dobbs became Governor Dobbs, Governor Hobbs became governor, she was like, "Hey, I'm going to raise, raise a bunch of money." Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have the numbers on offhand, but I know you know in election cycles, she has fundraised more than congressional candidates, more than. Uh, other, you know, statewide candidates. Um, she is able. She is. She is very popular um, in among the MAGA base nationwide. Yeah. Um, she, she has a national audience, um, and so she is able to fundraise just ungodly amounts of money from out of state. Um, for for her, you know, in her race, she's she's in a very secure seat. She doesn't need real estate. She doesn't need that much money. Um, but we have seen from campaign finance reports that she funnels the money through businesses to family members, friends, um, that sort of thing. And so she's taking these people's money, fundraising on the impossible uh, while making those in her circles much wealthier. Fabulous. Great, great public leader. Uh, let me ask you, uh, there's another issue that's come up in your state, one that, and it's quirky, but it's one that we've talked about on this show with others that, uh, that I kind of care a lot about. And that is, is, are you thinking that Arizona will be one of the states that finally gets rid of a sub minimum wage? And I'm thinking mostly of restaurant workers here. 
Yeah, so there there is a, a push for that to happen. Um, we do have uh, we have legislation um, that's been introduced to get rid of a subminimum wage, and, and basically what that is is you know with minimum wage laws, both federal and in most states, um, let's say your minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour. Um, the subminimum wage is if you work a job where you receive tips, you can get paid you know three, four, five, six dollars less. Um, be, you know, under the the pretense that your tips will be making up that difference. Um, yep. Now, in the, the reality, and I've you know I've, I've worked a tip job for years, uh, is that your employer isn't they're they're not keeping track of your your tips to the extent where they're going to give you more money. More cases, more often than not, um, you know, if if yeah. you're working here in a restaurant in the summer, making. I think the tip minimum wage is seven dollars an hour here now. Um, it, when when I was working tip minimum wage, I was making three dollars an hour. Um, in yeah. the summer, we didn't have we didn't have people coming into our restaurant. Right, um, it's very seasonal, so it's very difficult to yeah. budget. You have to go into debt, which you then pay off when you're flush. But that's no way to live. Exactly, and another another problem is is that. It, you know, tipping in general puts the the pressure on consumers to pay the wages of these employees. Um, you know, it's, it's a system that's rooted in in racism uh, as a way to pay you know black employees less than their yep. white counterparts. Um, and so, getting rid of the subminimum wage would really just be a step in the right direction as far as fair wages, uh, as far as better labor practices, um, and it would you know it would. In a, in a sense, get rid of this mm-hmm. one aspect of um, of racist policy that's persisted throughout the years. And, and do you see that as making progress in the state? Um, I do, but not this year. <laughs> um, okay. right. I, you know, it's 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 something that are. I don't think there will be enough report uh, support from uh, Republican legislators to pass legislation. I think yep. in the future, if we have a Democratic majority or if we put forth another citizens initiative to remove the subminimum wage, I think that would yeah. work. Yeah. Um, we, okay. we did raise our minimum wage by way of citizens initiative in, in 2016. And so there yeah. is support for doing it that way. So let's while we're being sort of policy and wonky, um, Phoenix, I think, is considering changing the size of its city council. Now, in yeah. my city of yeah. Chicago, we have a 50-member city council, which I think is the biggest in the country, but it's still 55,000 people a district. What, what, what's going on in Phoenix, and what are the arguments yeah. sort of for and against expansion? Yeah. Now, I, I will say as someone who's, who's covered and, and you know been a part of the Phoenix City Council in different capacities for years, uh, I am very much in support of enlarging the council size. Um, right now, the way it works is that we have eight council members um, who bo- who each represent you know over two hundred thousand people per district. Um, these council members also work in tandem with our mayor, uh, who is who's basically she's she works on the legislative end with the council members and acts more as an at large council member as opposed to um, uh, you know an executive branch mayor. And so, what is what is finally being discussed uh, when you know when the city gets it does its redistricting um, thanks to the census from 2020? Um, the, some of the council members have talked about increasing the council size. Um, 
so the the you know the districts are smaller. Um, I, you know, if you double the size, that's still a hundred thousand per district, which which is large. Um, mm-hmm. But it would allow it would allow council members to more directly work with their communities. It would allow uh, you know residents to have more access to council members, um, and it would make the council uh, more more diverse just by nature of uh, allowing more people to have a seat at that table. Mm-hmm. I I like uh, a larger council. I think it's a great idea for all kinds of reasons. Um, among them. Uh, the ability of residents to really know who their local elected person is uh, and to lean on them to deliver city services. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think smaller council sizes, you know, if, if this local level of a level, you should be able to call your council member and, and be able to talk to them. Uh, that's the whole and so What's the likelihood of this happening? Um, you know, there's been voiced support for by at least half of the council members. Uh, Interesting. Now this is a yeah. Uh, is it up to them, or does this is this or is it a state law change? Uh, so this would be within the city, but because it would be um, a change to our city charter, uh, yeah. it would need to be it would need to be brought to the voters. So it would be a, a ballot proposition. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. so the so the council would vote to bring it to a ballot proposition. So, so um, thank you for having oh, this. Kind of, I love that we can talk about things from, you know, sort of national big politics to very local policy decisions that affect people's lives. I love that. Yeah. Um, but we only have a little time left. So I have two other topics for you. Yeah. One is, uh, and, and these are going to zoom back out sort of nationally. Um, we, uh, um, have hit our, we can't borrow any money as a federal government anymore. We've hit our debt limit. So we are working around spending so that we don't default. Default, everyone agrees from, you know, the most conservative business organizations in the country to the most leftist economists in the country. They all agree this would be an enormous disaster for the United States and maybe for the world if we defaulted on our debt. But let me just name some names to you and you tell me where they are on this. On, on, on like, will they let our country default? The first one on my list is Paul Gosart. Uh, yeah, yeah, he would, he would, honestly, he would love to see us default, um, just so it could be under Joe Biden's watch. Chaos. Debbie Lesko. Uh, I don't, I don't think she would. Um, I think okay. she'd be persuaded to, to vote against this. Good. Uh, Juan Siscomani. For those of you who are listening who don't know this, I'm going through the Republican congressional delegation from Arizona. Yep. We don't know about him? Siswani, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think he would allow us to, to default, default either. Okay, that's two. Andy Biggs? Uh, he would, yeah. Okay. Um, Ellie Crane? Uh, Crane? Crane would as well. Okay. Uh, and I think there's one left. Uh, David Schweiker. David Schweiker, I don't think he would. Um, okay, so you have three in your delegation who might not, or three or four. So, so there's a. So I want everybody listening to hear this because what this means is there's a possibility, no doubt, at the last minute, but a possibility of a of a vote to discharge the legislation from committee. So, which means that that there's nothing that. Uh, 
than that the folks would have us default or Speaker McCarthy can do. It would be discharged and then the whole House can vote. Um, and that would be then, then we just need, you know, three or four. No, we need four or five defections. And you heard that there might be three just in the Republican uh, delegation in Arizona. So this notion of default, whew, we might actually avoid. Thank God. My last question um, is, you have a poll, new poll about Kristen Sinema's future. Yeah, you know, we could probably spend another 30 minutes talking about this. Um, but yeah, so so Ruben Gallego, he's a, a progressive Democrat, um, uh, member of the House of Representatives uh, from Arizona. He announced that he would be running as a Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate. Uh, we currently only have one Democratic senator uh, because Kirsten Sinema, she switched her party uh, last month or, right. or very recently uh, from from Democrat to independent. Um, yeah. And so there was there was some initial polling done shortly after Gallego announced uh, where the you know voters were, who voted recently were asked between Ruben Gallego as a Democrat, Carrie Lake as a Republican and Kirsten Sinema as an independent. Uh, and in no situation did Kirsten Sinema win. Uh, however, when she was taken out of the equation, Ruben Gallego would win fairly handily against Carrie Lake. Um, whereas if Sinema stayed in the race, uh, it would it would make it a much closer race uh, yeah. in where we could see a Senator Lake. Yeah, if she's not running for vice president with Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, or you know, uh, she could be under several investigations by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, it, as always, it's really fun to catch up. This isn't the conversation I expected. It was actually much more, you know, in the weeds, which I like, and I hope those of you who are listening appreciate, because governing is really important. It's not just politics. Governing is hard work, and these decisions on water, on on how do you make right size a district for a city, for a city council to work? Things like this are really important to governing and getting them right is part of the process of improving Americans' lives. And as we do that, we end up uh, inoculating ourselves from the autocracy that's all around us. So Cameron, thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree more. It's good talking with you, Edmund. All right, everybody, that was uh, Cameron Stevenson from the Copper Courier. We're going to take a break for the news. We're going to come back, and I have another sort of quirky topic. We're going to talk about gas stoves and, and why that's important, but we're going to have that conversation when we come back, and, of course, your calls. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back, everyone. And remember, this is the time when I'm going to take your calls. At the, starting at the bottom of the hour at 773-763-9278. So get ready. But first, Abe Scar is joining us. He's the director of the Illinois PERG, Public Interest Research Group. Um, and Abe, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be on. We're, we're, this is a topic that is a little out of the ordinary order of business for me and for this show, but I wanted to have it because – um, for a moment, this was a giant kerfuffle in national politics, namely, what's the deal with gas stoves? You know, I mean, you have uh, Governor DeSantis saying, I'm going to stop those Democrats from taking your stove, like I'm going to stop them from taking your guns or something like that. I don't think anybody has proposed taking anybody's stove, but there are issues with gas stoves. 
right? And you know the research. So I was hoping you could help us understand what's going on. Yes, there is growing evidence. There's actually been a long track record of scientific studies finding health risks associated with gas stoves going back 50 years. And it's just kind of burst through. We've been actually working on this for a couple of years, but um, some comments by a commissioner from the Consumer Product Safety Commission about you know, the, the fact that if a product cannot be made safe, it can be banned is what he said. He didn't say they were working to ban gas stoves, really kind yep. of thrust yep. into the limelight. But, yeah, the, the basics are, you know, not shockingly, if you're having an open flame of a fossil fuel in your house, that's going to emit some pollution. And the most uh, harmful thing that most uh, we should be worried about is nitrogen dioxide. And this is directly associated with asthma. And uh, asthma is a huge problem uh, here in the United States. And one recent study estimated that 22% of childhood asthma in Illinois could be attributed to gas stoves in the house. Okay, so hang hang on one sec. Hang on one sec. Um, So so the issue here is not um, a hydrocarbon issue for climate change. You're actually talking about individual health issues because a flame that's burning is not 100% efficient. Not every piece, not every molecule that comes out and, and is ignited actually gets burned up. But there's, there's, um, uh, I don't know, there's a word for it. There, there, the other molecules just end up in, in the atmosphere in your house. Yeah, just like if you are burning gas in a power plant or coal in a power plant, anytime mm-hmm. you're burning a fuel, there will be emissions. And, you know, I I have gas in my house. I have a gas boiler and a gas dryer. And when they burn fuel, they vent outside of the house. And that means that pollution is going out into the air. Uh, And that's a problem, but it's not concentrated. It's not right. I'm not standing right over it like I would be if I were cooking. I I replaced my gas stove uh, around a year ago out of concerns like this. So you're emitting pollution right into your house, often where the family is congregating. Um, and it's, it's a real risk. It's a real problem. And while you know, some of the um, heat rather than light that's been generated uh, in the political sphere uh, over the last couple of weeks is too bad because it really shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's a public health issue. It's great that we're having the opportunity to talk to people about this because I know lots of people um, just didn't know and didn't expect that something that uh, is very important to their daily lives could be harming them and, and their children. And we want to make sure that that word gets out. In uh, um, the research that you've done, here's why I um, wanted to talk to you that um, around the country for a generation, we've had different research uh, projects funded by utilities and their, and their research has not always proven to be just, you know, as reliable as it might be. Um, so the, uh, the research you're talking about is not the gas uh, utilities trying to uh, ditch the competition, is it? No. So we know of 55 peer-reviewed scientific studies uh, published over the last 50 years linking gas cooking to health problems. Yep. So yep. there's not it's not really in debate. The gas industry has been picking out one single study from 2013 that they claimed didn't find a link between uh, gas cooking and childhood asthma. But 
it's not a good model uh, study for that. And even the, the authors of the study have since come out and said, hey, the American Gas Association is misusing our study. They shouldn't be able to say that. And we've actually done further study, further research that shows a link between uh, gas stoves and, and asthma. So the science is really clear. It's not up for debate. It's clear there's a risk. Now the question is what we do about it. And while the Consumer Product Safety Commission is not contemplating a ban, they are contemplating regulation, and that's their mandate. They exist to ensure that consumer products across the board that are sold in the United States are safe. And they've initiated a public comment period to start gathering information such that maybe they can um, issue some regulations down the line. And are some gas stoves uh, more efficient, safer than others? Certainly there are some that are more efficient than others. I don't know of any documented research that says, you know, this gas stove will, because it's, you know, more energy efficient, that does not necessarily mean it is not emitting pollution. Uh, So there's certainly changes, differences in efficiency, and that's another thing that came out. The Department of Energy is looking into increasing energy efficiency standards for all stoves, not just gas, gas and electric. Yeah. but, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it, what's, it's important for people to know about the risk and for people to know about the alternatives. Uh, a lot of people, I think, are familiar with the old-school electric stoves that don't perform as well. Um, but right. there's new technology, uh, induction stoves, which use magnet, magnets in the stove uh, top, that actually outperform gas. Um, that's what I replace my gas stove with. I'm a home chef. I really like to cook. For years, I wouldn't instead of renting an apartment if it didn't have a gas stove. Um, and I've made the switch, and I, and I love it. And it's, uh, it performs really well for cooking, uh, and it doesn't have the associated health risks because I'm not burning a fossil fuel in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I when I was a boy, which was admittedly not yesterday, the gas stove in my house had a pilot light that was always on. So it burned all the time. Um, and not, not surprisingly, there was asthma in the household. Um, but it, it burned all the time, except when it was out, which was worse because the gas was still leaking out, right? right. Um, so, so at some point, we learned that we had to at least not have that and have gas stoves that would have a lighter, right? And, and right. Yeah. Um, like a spark plug. Um, but that's, I guess that was one kind of improvement. What other kind of improvements, or is that the only one? to gas stove technology have happened over the last, say, 20 years? Well, it's really interesting. I'll go back 40 years, um, because three years ago was the last time the Consumer Product Safety Commission actually considered um, the safety implications of gas stoves. They asked the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, if there was a reason for concern. The EPA got back to them and said yes. Unfortunately, then nothing happened. But because that was happening, Um, Around that time, the gas industry actually developed a safer stove technology, and um, they just never put it on the market because the regulations didn't come, and I guess they didn't want to admit (laughs) that that their their standard version wasn't as as safe. Uh, And perhaps, uh, I don't quite understand this, but just from what I've read, it would be less profitable with the safer design. So they created a safer design that would release less nitrogen dioxide, one of the key concerns, uh, 40 years ago, uh, but then didn't put it on the market. So um, 
you know, they know they've known there's a problem and they haven't taken action on it. Uh, you know, now, beyond the stove technology, the one thing that people can do, you know, if you've got a gas stove and you're worried about this and you're not ready to go you know, upgrade and spend money on a new stove, is use ventilation. Uh, especially if you have out, you know, ventilation that's outside, it's not going to solve everything. It doesn't necessarily get rid of all the nitrogen dioxide, but it's certainly better to have your overhead bent on than not. That would be the one thing I would recommend people do if you if you're able to do that. And right. So these are these are hoods, right, over the oven. Yeah. If you have a, yes. if you have a hood. Yep. Yep. Yeah, not everybody does. I've got, you know, I don't. I've got a microwave over my stove that kind of vents the air from the bottom of the microwave to the top, which maybe does something, but it's certainly not the same as taking it out and moving it outside of the house. Uh, one right, but you don't have a gas stove. Well, yes, now, yeah, now I don't. Um, but while well, I was concerned mm-hmm. about this before, you know, I didn't have I didn't have that ventilation option, and a lot of people. I see. Yep. You open a window. One other thing people can do is you can buy single induction uh, burners. So if you're not ready to replace your whole stove or your whole cooktop, you can get a single burner, and you can get one for under $100. Um, and that way you can, you know, if you want to boil a pot of water, because they perform really well at that, yeah. you can yeah. you know, have, your, have your gas stove on a little bit less because you're, you're using um, just a, a single uh, cooktop for induction. And we've been talking about stoves and cooktops, but the, the same, all this hold true for ovens, broilers, I mean, the whole thing? Yes, I think there's a little difference in just when you're cooking directly over the flame with the stove. But yes, anytime you're, uh, you know, have a gas flame, whether it's uh, on your boiler in your stove or in the uh, in the oven, you know, you're going to have some some health risks. Right, but I, I guess I just don't know this. Uh, is there venting from um, in the oven that vents outside in a way that the cooktop doesn't? Not standard, no. Um, it, it, will, it will still be uh, releasing air into your kitchen. Just, into the house. You know, as a yeah. cook, you're not necessarily standing right over it. Right, right. I see. Well, this is all really interesting, and I, I was interested to you know be sure it wasn't uh, just other industry research that was leading to this. Because um, I wouldn't put it above the electric utilities to have misleading research about their opponents. Uh, no, I wouldn't put it uh, past the meter, but, um, you know, this has been going on for a long time and it's not just, uh, you know, industry c- competition. Uh, there's peer reviewed scientific evidence of, of the risk. What other topics are you currently researching that are of this kind of interest? Well, um, the thing I'm spending a lot of my time on that is, you know, not necessarily in the public health sphere, but is related is gas utilities, um, especially here in Chicago and in the Chicago suburbs, because every uh, gas utility right now is uh, issuing a major rate hike. Um, and it's been done for uh, a lot of it is stemming from what we think is wasteful overinvestment in the gas system that is unwise uh, if we are seriously considering moving away from burning gas in our homes over the next 20 or 30 uh, to 40 years. Um, so that's one of the things we're spending a lot of time on because it's, it's coming up and everybody could be getting, you know, a big sticker shock on your, on your home heating bills. Uh, in the are, are you saying that the, that the gas utilities want to raise rates to fund um, uh, over expansion that they've already completed? So this is paying bonds or is it that they are contemplating 
a new set of investment in pipes and, and other infrastructure. So, so in the last decade, uh, because of a state law, they've kind of had a free hand to spend as much as they want to on, on certain categories of, of spending on their system. And, you know, the way utilities work, if the more money you spend uh, the, as quickly as you can, the more you can raise rates and raise profits. And they were just kind of given a blank check to do that over the last decade. And that's leading to this current rate hike. And then they would do, they want to keep it going. <laughs> they want to keep spending. Um, so in, in suburban Chicago, the gas utility has been expanding and um, replacing their transmission, even though it's not clear that they, they need to do that, their transmission pipes. Here in Chicago, People's Gas has had a really troubled pipe replacement program for many years. And there's, there's some truth to the fact that they do have some very old pipes in their system that need to be replaced. But instead of just replacing the pipes that are at risk of failure, they're actually overhauling that entire system. They're, they're making lots of investments that, you know, maybe would make sense if we were confident we were going to be using our gas system in 80 years. But that's definitely not the case. Um, and uh, they've been they want to continue that. That's part of the proposal is just to keep keep that pipe replacement going as is. And one thing that we're going to be challenging and hopefully hoping to rein in through this regulatory process. So at the same time that the gas utility is looking for a big rate hike, the electric utility, I think, has just gone in for um, one and a, almost one and a half billion dollar rate hike. Yes, Commonwealth Edison, the Northern Illinois <laughs> Electric Utility, uh, filed what's called a multi-year rate plan. This is a new system. Uh, yes, for a one point five billion dollar rate increase over those four years, a significant portion of which would just be in the form of a, a higher profit rate. Um, similarly, you know, we all are familiar with ComEd's bribery scandal for the last decade. That scandal had a lot to do with laws they got passed that allowed them to raise rates every single year through an automatic formula. And similar to the gas utilities, that just incentivized and gave them every reason to overinvest and spend as much money as they could as quickly as they can, and they have um, billions and billions of dollars in the electric system. Uh, and that that also that system is also just coming to a close uh, here in 2023, and that's one reason we have all these rate hikes at the same time. Is it really started with the ComEd scandal because the gas utilities came in later and said, "Hey, we want what ComEd got." Yeah, something a little different, but essentially, again, state policy was rewarding all of these utilities and incentivizing them to raise our rates uh, for the last decade uh, more incrementally. That that policies are now ending, and it's so it's um, changing, and they're all coming in at once for big rate hikes. And but it's a it, real challenge to, to work on all these in one year. People are... I, we were sold that we were paying more because we were getting a smart grid system that ultimately would be more efficient, less wasteful, much safer, much more reliable, um, would be able to balance load better, would be able to let, oh, I don't know, wind farms plug in in ways that would work. And, and people were willing to pay more for an investment that achieved those ends, not for an investment that just uh, increased profits. Did we get the results that we were promised? I don't believe so. Um, or at least we paid more than we should have to get the results. 
clear product. Um, we actually did a pretty in-depth study of this a couple of years ago. As you're right, it was, it was all a story that Comet told about the smart grid and all these amazing things would come from the smart grid. They said they needed $2.6 billion to spend an extra $2.6 billion over 10 years and to get this out of these automatic yearly rate hikes in order to do that. They actually have spent more than $8 billion over it. And a lot of the things they promised uh, have not come to fruition. There have been improvements in reliability. It's hard to spend $8 billion on an electric utility and not improve reliability. So that there have been some improvements. The question is, did we get value? Did we pay what we should have paid? Um, and that's, that's always the question with utilities. So they're always going to say, oh, look at all these great things, and they can point to these results. But they don't want you to actually do a, an analysis of it. They're really looking at, are these benefits worth the costs? And yep. they're yep. spinning the same story now. You know, they always have a story. Uh, and they're always promising that they need to make these investments to have the grid we want and for clean energy. And, you know, I'm a clean energy advocate. I want a grid that can handle rooftop solar and storage and electric vehicles and homes transitioning yep. from gas to electricity. Yep. We, we all want that. But just because we want that doesn't mean Comet gets whatever it wants. <laughs> and that's so speaking of which, um, yep. uh, th- there's um, back in 1991 and two, ancient history, but I was a Chicago alderman, and I led the committee work on a franchise agreement with Commonwealth Edison. Yeah. That that franchise agreement expired. For those of you who don't know this, the cities have to cities don't have to use an electric company; they can do their own power. But if they use one, they usually sign a long term agreement with them that that covers all the things that the city and the utility do together, like cutting into roads and you know who pays who for what. Anyway, we negotiated one of those agreements, big and complicated. It ended up, it should have been done and renegotiated years ago, but nobody had the time or energy or courage to do it, so they just kicked it down the road until now. And now, in the middle of an election, right, we've been announced there's a new ComEd franchise agreement, and it should be rushed to uh, approve. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I do. I haven't had a chance to thoroughly look over the provisions um, and certainly the timing is, you know, a challenge. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's during election. Uh, yeah, you just wait and give it the kind of, I mean, maybe it's a great agreement, maybe it isn't, but we do need to see it and study it. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. This is not the type of thing to be rushed. Um, and the status quo is just the old agreement, and so it's not like something imminent that's going to happen if, if we don't sign it. And that's true for ComEd as well. They're, they're happy to post with the current agreement. There's not Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure on that. I do think it's significant. There's uh, roughly $100 million of shareholder money that ComEd has committed as part of the agreement. And that's a big commitment. I mean, ComEd is making way too much in profits. They'll soon be making over a billion dollars in profits every year. So in that context, $100 million over a 15-year agreement is not a ton of money, but you know, typically what happens in these franchise agreements is a, a city and their utility will negotiate things and the city may get a lot of free electricity or get this or that and the other. And then just all the costs are just paid for by the ratepayers, by the customers. That's right. Um, when it's when it's shareholder money, that 
that is them taking a dip into their profits, and that's that's significant. So there's been a there is a critique about the fact that the money is going to a new nonprofit. They would have a a board rather than a city, and I think that's a worthwhile debate. Um, but I do think you know that that is significant and something that um, uh, hopefully will will remain some form of that commitment to, to for them to put shareholder money on the line. Yeah, I mean, I particularly, I always just worry in a political context that, you know, they're putting shareholder money in, but they're also at the very same moment going to the state to increase rates so that there'll be a lot more shareholder money. All of it, all of it feels a little insidery for me. Yeah, and, um, you know, uh, you will know this better than I, but the mayor of Chicago has always been very, uh, powerful and uh, probably with past agreements, uh, you know, in past councils, perhaps the mayor introducing agreement would just set up their council, and that doesn't appear to be the case here. And you know, maybe having a council push back will will lead to a better deal. Uh, I, I yep. know the folks in the city who who were working on this negotiation. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about it. I I trust that they were pushing really hard and pushing to get things in here that they weren't able to get. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, if we can get a better deal through an active council that's also um, pushing ComEd on some of the places where ComEd wouldn't budge with just the mayoral negotiation, then that's great. Um, and yeah, that and need, a little, need a little time. And we need, a, we need an agreement that's, I mean, part of being better in the context of go- good governance, whether this is in Chicago or in, uh, or in Phoenix, is that it's publicly vetted so that the public ha- it knows and has kicked the tires. If you're going to sign up for many, many years, you have to have had a chance to know what you're signing up for and not take any mayor's word for it because that's not the world we live in. Yes, and I think, you know, uh, I'm hopeful that in Chicago we're moving towards a place where we'll have more a little more of that. Yeah, yeah, a little more of that. That's always yep. good. Yeah. Well, listen... I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate this um, uh, uh, lesson uh, into both gas stoves and the way the utility industry uh, is supposed to work um, and how it does work in, in Illinois, which is not, I don't think, traditionally been a model for uh, um, uh, perfectly behaved public utilities. <laughs> Certainly not. We didn't even get into no. the comments no. uh, no. overruns in the 80s and 90s. No. All right. Well, Abe, thank you so much. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. I'd love to. I, I appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. Yep. All right, everybody. We are uh, uh, going to turn from sort of a really interesting conversation with Abe Scar, the director of Illinois PERG, to a series of other really interesting conversations that you are going to lead at 773-763-9278. I think we'll take a break here, and I'll take your calls as soon as we come back, 773-763-9278. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back. It is uh, uh, 3.00. 30-ish, and I'm very interested in hearing from you on everything from the shooting down of the Chinese balloon to the sort of crazy flood the zone strategy of, you know, 
political um, crap, which is what Steve Bannon has called for and what we see in the Congress right now, to the actual governing sort of complicated issues we've talked off and on about for the last few hours here. Jim, what's on your mind? Hi, Evan. Just a stamp shot of the odds. Uh, the odds is of this moment, Trump wins the uh, Republican nomination, prohibitive favorite. In the, in the general, Biden kills Trump in the general. Now, during that, in my, between Trump's ego and his, his greed for money, let's say something does stumble, and our best bet you know, would be beautiful. He ran as a third party, but he could be talked into a third party if the money was right. And if the platform is right, where you could still, you know, go out, uh, go out with a blast. You know what I mean? Wait, who are you talking about, Trump? I'm talking about Trump. Yeah, Trump. Trump is prohibitive favorite to win the nomination for the Republican Party. But against Biden, he's a dead loser against Biden. Those are the odds today. Biden's about a four to one winner over Trump. So Trump. Trump will eventually have to run as a third party because I'm sure that the party, uh, the Republican Party, here talking about it running. It'll run anyway because of his greed and his ego, and he wants to go out with a boom. That's all. That's the way to say. Well, I think he's. I, I think he's running to try and stay out of jail at this point. And, you know, because right. if, if he's pre- if he right, so so, and I don't think it's going to work. I I think that the noose is tightening. Um, I'm less worried about Donald Trump than I am about the movement that he created that is so uh, uh, sharply opposed to democratic norms and democratic values. And I'm not talking about partisan Democrats. I'm talking about small d democratic norms and values and institutions. They're at risk because of this movement. But Edwin, the, the Supreme Court is seven points. That's what they're they're looked at. They're about seven. They're so low. In opinion polls in the United States, that it's incredible. It's never been this low. They're like at seven percent. Nobody believes in anything that they're 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 acting upon. So I don't know. It looks to me. It looks like uh, we're going to swamp them. <laughs> like you have a great weekend. And thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, boy, I sure hope you're right. Uh, um. I sure hope you're right. But, you know, it's uh, very nervous making um, because the next election is is, uh, the Senate race. The Senate map is so difficult. So many of uh, incumbent Democrats are up for reelection and so few Republicans. So we can talk about that. And I will certainly schedule shows on that uh, as we get closer. Jim. uh, No, Jim, I was just talking to you. Uh, Paul, you're next. Yeah. Hi, Evan. I was listening to the segment on uh, originalism, and that this is uh, rearing its ugly head uh, again, only it's a movement. It's not just a judicial doctrine. Um, this is what the right wing wants to do to, in a de- kind of a de facto attempt to repeal the 14th Amendment. Um, and that the originalist view, <coughs> uh, which was before the Civil War, and there was a paradigm shift after the Civil War. Originalism, actually, as a judicial doctrine, was first stated by Justice David Brewer in the 1905 uh, Lochner decision. He was saying that the court should take an originalist view of the Constitution despite the 14th Amendment, and conservatives on the court did. Um, so what the originalist view is, essentially, is that power lies 
with the people of the several states, not with the people as a collective of the United States, which is a concept that's foreign to us because when you think that way, what it leads to uh, is kind of a balkanization of the, of the nation. And we saw that in the Civil War, and we're seeing it again. Uh, if, if we don't think of the people as the people of one nation and that the, the power lies with people of the several states, well, then the people of the several states can elect these, you know, these uh, radicalized legislatures, and they want to use that theory to, to uh, you know, have a twelfth amendment, have the the uh, this this thing that's going on in North Carolina with uh, the the uh, the, uh, the sovereign legislatures uh, case um, is an example of that that. They don't want they don't want to have and and the idea of canceling out things like critical race theory, which critical race theory is not a theory. It's it's that I mean you're a musician, so you understand that like music theory is not a theory. It's simply a historical <laughs> uh cataloging or or study of how music has been certainly not a scientific uh, theory, for sure. No, well right. it's it's a, a theory right. can mean to look at how things have been done. It's kind of yep. an exegesis of how things have been done. But so critical race theory would be to study how have the laws, and it was, a, it was coined in, at Boston University Law School, I think 1969, to talk about the kinds of courses in law schools that have been offered after the patches of the Civil Rights Act. So if you eliminate this discussion, which is we call now CRT, then you have to say that, uh, it's okay that uh, you have to say that a, a decision like the Dred Scott decision is okay. Now, in an originalist theory, it was okay. In other words, well, people are so, property. The, right, the, so hang, hang, the hang decision, on. Hang on. So, but the originalists, first off, I agree with you. It is an utterly bogus um, notion, whether it's a theory, a notion, an idea, it, it is, it's utterly nonsense. I actually cite it somewhere else. I think it's the same, um, default to holiness from people who say, you know, the Bible is the word of God and you cannot change. It, it can only be interpreted one way and there's an orthodoxy around it and it's divine. And, and somehow these people think the constitution is not the work of humans, but is also divine and cannot be um, altered in any way. It's the same uh, uh, refusal to think in both cases. Um, yeah. but, but, but the constitution does allow amending and the 14th amendment is part of the Constitution. And, and you know, the originalists can't say, oh, we only are, we, we, we <laughs> you know what, we, we, we like, there are no books of the Bible after, you know, uh, after Exodus. Like, that's it. The rest we don't count. <laughs> like, that, 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 that they don't do. They can't do that. Well, well it would also be like saying that um, the Bible is, uh, isn't a living, breathing, um, uh, uh, anthology. In other words, it was it, it lost its relevance two thousand years ago because nothing. If it, it it's and no clergyman would no no clergy person would ever say that. In fact, the it, the Bible has to be relevant in everyday it, it, to to everyday life. Otherwise, it means nothing. So it well yeah. There are people who there there are people though who have squared that circle by saying everyday life should be. Um, 
governed by the moral uh, rules exactly like they were in ancient history. And that, that question is just them, wrong. I would invite them to sew their own clothes of one thread uh, you know, and, and not wear any garment that, I mean, this is the argument that Peter and Paul had, which is you either live by every part of the law or not at all. And that's where they, they that's where they just, I mean, that's too much theology, but the point is, is that uh, there is, I think that to say that if, if you want to stick with what was an originalist view, and I'll say that yeah, there was an originalist view that said that, for instance, as I said in the Dred Scott decision, Chief Justice Taney didn't say that uh, the result was, yeah, he's, he's, uh, the Dred Scott was a slave, but he just said, you don't have standing in this court because you are property. You're not a person. And you're certainly not a citizen, so this court cannot hear a case of diversity of citizens of two different states. I'm sorry, you have no standing because you are property. And right. Was, so the 14th Amendment changed that. Yeah. 14th Amendment yeah. changed that. The, whole, the yeah. whole Civil War, that's exactly it. The Civil War and the three post-war amendments were a complete shift in the American paradigm and consciousness and concept of what the Constitution means. Exactly. So if they want right. to live in... It, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, antebellum America. Well, um, yeah. they're going to try and take us there, but we're not going to let them. Right? We're just, they're going to try. We're not going to let them. But that's why this is an important time. I mean, uh, we, what you do every day, what I do, the stuff you write, the stuff we talk about on this show, all the journalists who come on here, the thousands and thousands of people who volunteer in campaigns around the country and who have parted with their money and their time are all of us in the midst of a multi-year fight to create for the first time a really multi-racial democracy that's stable and that never was going to be easy you know never was going to be easy but we're going to get there and part of what it means to be woke is in most people don't kind of uh, keep themselves and this kind of thought. Most people presume that, oh, aren't we all equal? And most people have no concept of what originalism means. Most people think of the post-war Civil War paradigm as uh, uh, liberty and justice for all is what most people think of. And they presume that it hasn't been the way it's always been. And why would they don't they don't they're not woke to the threat that these originalist thinkers are wanting to impose them. And that's what woke really means is wake, woke up and smell the coffee. That's what it <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you for that. Um, and I will talk to you next week. Okay. All right. Um, Roosevelt, you're next. Double E, my friend. How are you doing today? Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. I want your input on two subjects. Number one, Andrew Iverson. Have you heard the audio? I have not heard the audio. I read about it this morning, but I have not heard it. Okay. Um, I, I don't think that I'm going to be able to give you word for word, but basically their plan was all along to point the figure at Democrats this is on uh, November 5th, 2020, um, and say that the Democrats had stolen the, the election, to put it. Uh, knowing it was wrong, after they, uh, after they knew it was wrong. Exactly. So yeah. 
That's point number one. And point number two, your input on the um, the question that they they asked of uh, McCarthy when they asked, uh, I believe a reporter asked him, uh, was it two days ago? Did he think that uh, the policeman that shot that young lady that died at the insurrection was he doing his job? And McCarthy said yes. So there's trouble in paradise, not and not even to mention the fact that uh, Haley is throwing her hat, is gonna throw her hat in the ring on the 15th, I believe. So there's gonna be uh, quite a number of uh, uh, wars within the Republican Party. And it's starting with Trump already, I believe, is throwing already a lot of rocks at Haley and DeSantis. And you and, uh, you and Paul were talking about woke. Is there a more woke party than Tucker saying uh, things about the M&Ms? Uh, <laughs> you, were t- you touched on the subject of so. I know. You covered the, you got three things out there. Um, uh, so, so, um, Iverson still has a job with the Republican party. Um, uh, I hope the justice department puts, uh, uh, pays attention to everyone who was involved in cheating and trying to steal the election. Um, uh, and so I hope he's under a microscope and, but people like him are around and they're going to stay around for a few more election cycles until we have, uh, put them in the dustbin of history where they belong. Um, um, the chaos in the Republican party, uh, well, chaos is what they do. They've done it to the country every chance they can get in the house right now. Chaos is what they want. You know, they were all about the balloon. Well, we shot the balloon down. They won't take a breath. Um, to see, you know, before they're on to something else that has got a flavor of the day to distract from, oh my gosh, great jobs numbers, improvement in inflation, a resurgence in manufacturing, infrastructure being built everywhere. America is on the move and we're going in the right direction. And it's because of fabulous leadership over the absolute do everything possible to stop it. I mean, I think about the 117th um, Congress. I think about Nancy Pelosi the same way I think about Walter Payton. Walter Payton was a Chicago Bear runner, and he ran a little over 11 miles in his career. And imagine that, a football player, when, when the entire team is coming at you and trying to stop you, he made it 11 miles. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's in- incredible. That's what the Democrats have been doing up against these um you know, people who just want to pull us down and stop us from moving forward because they know if we stop improving the lives of Americans, Americans are going to say, well, you know what, maybe democracy wasn't such a great idea after all. But um, but we aren't. We're impro- we are saving the idea of democracy by actually showing that it delivers. And when we do that and we get through this hump, we will have also pass through the narrows of what people have come on this show and described as this white Christian nationalist revanchist uh, effort to draw us backwards, um, which brings me to your first point, which was that Paul talked about woke. I don't really like the word. I don't use it. You know, it's just become another word that's a that's a thing we throw at each other. 
right? Um, but so I, so, so I, I don't really, doesn't, I, I just stay away from it. But the ideas are there. And you said, is there anything more sort of, um, uh, Puritan language, like you cross a line in using the language than what goes on in the Republican side, whether it's about, um, you know, uh, M&Ms, right, um, who, which caved to Tucker. They caved. They're getting rid of their spokes M&Ms because somehow that is corrupting the youth um, to what's going on in schools. We heard about it here. It's just appalling appalling, dangerous stuff um, and, a, and a shrinking of the American soul. And, and doubly, to end it on a good note and positive, the 517,000 jobs that were created in the January month. Huh? Awesome, right? Awesome. Yeah. So, awesome. And again, what were the predictions? What were the predictions? Yeah. We're in a recession. America's terrible. The Democrats have ruined everything. Oops, another half a million jobs. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You. And they you. shot down the Chinese balloon. Go figure. <laughs> All right, Roosevelt, thank you. Have a good Talk to you soon. Yep, you too. Joe, you're next. Yes, hi. Interesting show today. Thank you very much for it. Um, well, thank you for listening. I, something. It, I wanted to bring up something um, about this idea that we're going to raise the debt ceiling through a discharge petition in Congress. Yes. And about two weeks ago, Lawrence O'Donnell had a congressperson on that he claimed was the most expert person on this process in Congress. Yep. And this person said that the um, idea that passing legislation to a dis- discharge petition is virtually zero that the process at the fastest will take four months, maybe five months, maybe six months, and that there's a number of obstacles that could derail the whole thing to require it to start over again, such as yep. if any person in the Senate changes one item, then the whole thing is null and void. That's right. When I hear reporters saying, I'm just saying, when I hear reporters keep saying that this can be done by discharge petition, this is a result of very bad media that does us no good service. Mm. These are not people reporting. They're just repeating what each other is saying. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, And I appreciate that there are difficulties. Uh, I am not a reporter, and I'll pretend to be one. Um, I do know a lot about Congress. Um, I agree with you. It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. Um, and, and I want to count up the votes. Um, and I want to keep the pressure on Congress in every possible way to do the right thing. But I think that the, that the GOP um, faction that controls the House would burn the country down if they thought that would give them power. So I don't think they are, have any interest um, in letting a, a, a bill out um, unless they get something in return, which they can't get, because honoring our nation's debts is not the same thing as negotiating over a budget. There's a budget. We'll negotiate over the budget. This is paying for the budget they already passed. And this is paying for a bloated deficit that bloated under Donald Trump, right? So um, so your point that it's enormously difficult is a fair one, and everybody should hear it. Everybody should hear it. It's enormously difficult. But we better prepare to do the difficult thing because the front door is closed. 
That that has right. I'm just saying that the, the media should, instead of saying, "Oh, we can do this by discharge petition," should be saying there needs to be a group of ten Republicans that that act responsibly and get this done. And because the way it's going to get done is if McCarthy puts it to a vote, or if there's ten Republicans working with the Democrats to unseat him, put somebody else in, increase the debt ceiling. Then they can go back and put McCarthy back to do whatever they want, but demonstrate yeah. that there are 10 Republicans that want to be responsible, not let things get derailed. Well, I, I'm with you. I mean, one of the reasons why in the conversation I had, that, you know, you heard me go through, literally go through the delegation with the reporter and ask him, because I'm trying to find who are the 10 in the whole country who will put their country first. Can we find 10 Republicans in the House of Representatives who will put their country first? Can we? It's that's the question the country is facing. We, we are, we've already seen that because of the vote this week on getting rid of Omar from the, the her committee. There are yeah, well that, that we, we need to we need to make ten Republicans be responsible. That aren't yeah, and that's really well, the debt. Not only do they have to want to do the right thing, they're going to have to deal with all the threats of death that these people throw out there for everything now. Ah, oh, charming bunch, isn't it? All right, well we we're just going to have to keep doing what we can do. Joe, this is what we got to do. No. Thank you for your call. Well, thank you for your knowledge. I really appreciate it. Yep, yep. Rose, you're next. Hey, Edwin. Hey, if the extreme right-wingers are so hell-bent on keeping children from learning about things like slavery and other things about black history and such things, I wonder how much they want kids not to learn about how when the quote-unquote white man came to this country... They slaughtered the buffalo to try to kill off the Native Americans. I'm sure they don't want them feeling guilty about that because then they feel guilty about the Native Americans and the buffaloes. There's just so much that's being kept from people. I mean, just thinking back to my childhood, I can't remember hearing about any of this stuff years ago. It's so, unbelievable. So here's why I'm optimistic. Look, there were the, the, the Ron DeSantis's of the world, the whatever this group is that's popped up in Michigan, they all want to shut down what we learn, right? They want children not to know, oh my gosh, there were people here when Columbus showed up. Oh my gosh, there was there was slavery in America and it has long term terrible effects on on the country. Oh, my God. Um, uh, people in this country are gay and and straight and trans. They don't they want to they want us to not know any of that. Right. They want to ban they that. Have, they somehow. have family members. A lot of them have their own family members that are LGBTQ absolutely right or whatever. Absolutely. Right. But but here's the thing. They can't ban it. Take it out of a classroom. I mean, you, when you grew up and when I grew up, the curriculum the curricula in our schools uh, <clears throat> wouldn't pass muster today. You know, the things I learned about American history they weren't true, or they were just a tiny sliver of the story, right? I mean, I wasn't taught anything about the contributions of black Americans when I was a child. I wasn't. But but I, I knew how to use a library, and, you know, I knew how to read, um, and I was curious, and I've learned. And you've learned your whole life, right? There is, there is, there is no way that they're going to hide what is really true. And I know what happens because in my life, I've told the story. Thank God that kids are inquisitive. The more you try to get something from them, 
they will they're going to find it. You, good for them. Good for them. you bet they will. And they're going to be angry. And I know this in my yeah. own life. I've told this story on the air before. But I was in, I, I paid a visit. I was in a part of a group that visited the eastern part of Germany right after the Berlin Wall fell. And um, I visited one of the uh, concentration camps in Buchenwald. And this woman gave me this tour and she was crying and she was crying with rage. And I'm like, okay, why are you, why are you this way? Why are you, you've given this to a hundred times. Why are you so emotional? And she said, and this was all with a translator. She said, it was only in the last few weeks after the wall fell that I learned what happened here. I have been lying to people about what happened in this camp for 20 years because the communists told us things that weren't true. And now I know what really happened here. And, and so I can, for the first time, and I'm so mad at the lies I have told and I have been told and I was taught to tell. And I think she is like so many human beings. And I think the young people growing up today who are being told by the Ron DeSantis's of the world that they have to ignore what they know is out there. And when they see it, they're going to be furious. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yep. Thanks so much. Thank you for calling, Rose. Really appreciate it. All right, Dave, I guess I think you get to close the show, Dave. Okay. Hey, Evan. Hey, I'm, another one with these documents. I, uh, excuse me, I had read earlier this week where former President Jimmy Carter even had found classified material at his home in Plains, Georgia, on, on at least one occasion, but he returned them to the National Archives, and and this was after he had left office in 1981. They didn't do mm-hmm. exactly what day, you know, if it was whatever. But but it's notable to notice that President Carter signed the Presidential Records Act in 1978. Yep. It didn't it didn't apply to records of of his administration and takes effect years later, like uh, after Reagan and stuff like that. And uh, he. Um, and that before that, the records were generally considered the private property of the presidents individually, I suppose, for their libraries and whatnot. But uh, it, uh, well, we've le- we've learned some troubling things about uh, uh, about the hand about the uh, numbers of documents that are classified and the handling of classified documents in the last few months. Really troubling things. But, but we've also learned that every single person who had them has fully cooperated and returned them and done their best to make sure they comply except one. Right. <laughs> except well, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He brought it all on himself. But like in, in Pence's case, I read up a little bit more, and it said the material found in the boxes was from his official residence was at the Naval Observatory where the packing had been handled by military aides rather than staff lawyers. And yep. when they found them, the boxes were taped shut and not believed to have been opened and that. And, uh, and then they're saying that basically there's anyone who, you know, they're taking these documents in an authorized location is only a prosecutable crime if someone is found to have knowingly removed documents from a proper place. Kind of like when uh, uh, David Betrayus did that. Yeah, all he got out of his was a two-year probation and a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand yeah. fine. Yeah, Sandy Berger saying, but, uh, but the, the the Trump case is egregious, 
The others, oh, the yeah. Trump case is yeah. truly egregious, um, and it's a part of a bigger pattern of of um, total disregard for the institutions, um, and the norms, uh, the laws of our country, um, and the um, and the idea that you know the state isn't him. I mean, let tat moi said uh, Louis the Fourteenth, and they or Louis the Sixteenth, and they chopped his head off. Well, Louis the Fourteenth said it, and then they chopped Louis the Sixteenth head off. Yeah, he's been able to sit back and thumb his nose at at justice and everything. They have done nothing where you and I or anybody listening do it would be sitting behind bars and that. And I can assure you, I disagree with you. They have not done nothing, and I think they're yeah. going to get him. But it's complicated to get next president, and I think they are investigating it, and they're working from the bottom. They're going to get him. Okay, hey, Edwin, and lastly, uh, there was that story also where um, where Chief Justice J- uh, Roberts, his wife, now, that the colleague of hers filed a complaint to Congress that the, in the Justice Department alleging conflicts of interest and influence peddling in cases that went before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is to get away with murder like that, and now her. I mean, yeah, the Supreme Court doesn't have any ethics rules. That doesn't mean they all behave unethically, but some clearly um, they, they've clearly demonstrated the need for stronger ethics rules. Um, but they have so many other fundamental problems with their decisions. I view this as the as a distraction from the bigger issue of their own illegitimacy, or just one more example of it. Yeah. I'd like need to, to fix the credit, bring them up uh, impeachment on both of them, get them out because they're not recusing themselves. So. But uh, yeah, well, they, they yep, it, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Good talk. Yep. Well, thank well. thank you so much, and thank all of you for staying with me today. It was a kind of different kind of show um, uh, with some very local stuff and some interesting policy conversations and of course the politics but that's all part of the big picture what we do here and i uh, am grateful to you every week for taking this journey with me i'll talk to you next week